Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. Showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Now, the war is Clint Eastwood is the star, Tully Savalas is the other star. I'm uh, getting star billing, but I'm not in it. I have the part of Crap Game. He plays Kelly, and Tully Savalas plays Big Joe, which I think is an original name for a soldier. Yeah, that's a... Kelly! What the hell are you doing here? Yeah, looking after the colonel, that's what. Shoot him and let's get the hell out of here. Shoot him, we don't get the gold. What gold? Proposition. You might be interested in helping me out. Oh. I want you to set up a barrage for me. Yeah. If you whisper one word about the gold to these guys, I'm going to have you bounce from this outfit so fast your feet won't even touch the ground. Okay, Kelly. What is it? I want the intelligence reports of this whole sector, and I need them in the next two hours. That's nice. What's in it for me? Behind enemy lines. I got three Shermans outside. His name's Oddball. A Sherman can give you a very nice edge. These are my boys. It's still up. <laughs> no, it ain't. Look, baby, I'm kind of hung up. I need about 60 feet of bridge. Listen, kid, they haven't got you back in an upward again, have they? I don't need you. 60 feet of bridge I can pick up almost anywhere. Schmuck. All right, all right. I need at least 100 guys. Where do I find 100 men just like that? Mouth all better show up, Kelly. Come on, let's move it up. But my hair is still in covers. Oh, sure, get out. Sure, get with this thing. Hey, nobody said anything about flapping a 30 caliber machine gun all over the country. I'm making $50 if you carry the machine gun, huh? Fire! Fire! I thought you said three Shermans. Those nuts have brought half the army with them. What is this? Hey, what is this, a ball game? Who are these guys? My friends, okay? And who's that bunch of refugees over there? The band. 
with the band? What do we need a band for? You see, we're just a private enterprise operation. Those freaks! That ain't an army, it's a circus! It could be the perfect crime. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Sam Deegan. I'm just drinking wine and eating cheese and catching some rays. Also back in the booth is Mr. Bill Ackerman. Hey, glad to be back. On this episode, we are looking at Brian G. Hutton's Kelly's Heroes. Released in 1970, the film stars a bevy of amazing actors, including Clint Eastwood as the titular Kelly. Set in World War II, when Kelly catches wind of a cache of Nazi gold, he hatches a scheme to get it. Unfortunately, it is deep behind enemy lines. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen Kelly's Heroes, please stop the podcast and go track it down. We will still be here when you return. So, Bill, when was the first time you saw Kelly's Heroes, and what did you think? I came to this one rather late. I only saw this a few months ago. I saw it around the holidays. Um, it was a film I was aware of, but just caught up with it recently. I think I was expecting it to be more of a traditional men-on-a-mission war movie, like a um, like Clint Eastwood leading a group of soldiers, like a Dirty Harry Dozen kind of thing, I guess. Whoa, but like nice. I think I was surprised at how much of a comedy it actually was, and I was really uh, struck by how much it tried to play to the counterculture type uh, anti-war generation of the time, um, as much as the silent majority uh, audience that I assumed was it was um, you know is the audience that has kind of kept it in circulation all these years. But uh, you know, I, I did like it while um, you know maybe uh, being surprised at how odd it was. How about you, Sam? This is one of those movies that has just sort of been around forever for me because as a kid, it was on TV a lot and I watched it. I think it probably took me a while to see it all the way through, but I watched it because embarrassingly enough, my first crush was Telly Savalas. Who loves your baby? I do. I've never really liked conventional war films and so this is something that I was drawn to for a lot of those reasons that Bill just said, that it's such a weird war movie. Like, it's not at all a straightforward, heroic-type story, and it has so many great actors giving these really quirky performances. But at the same time, I think it has a lot of issues, and it also suffered from comparisons. Like, I don't think it really holds up to something like MASH or even something like Where Eagles Dare, but is sort of this fun little curio in its own right. Yeah, this one feels like it was kind of wallpaper when I was growing up. It's like one of those movies that you would see on like a UHF channel playing totally. on a Saturday afternoon. This movie feels like it was made for our dads. It's funny. It's got adventure. It's got some very well-known faces. 
there's nothing that's offensive if we put this on on Saturday afternoon and just let it roll. The kids can watch it, the wife can watch it, but really it feels like this is a dad movie. And it took me so long to finally catch up with this one. I know for sure I'd seen bits and pieces over the years, and then I finally, I don't even remember what the impetus was, but sat down and watched it a few years ago, and it just... I can't say it blew me away, but certain aspects of it blew me away. I'll be honest, Donald Sutherland blew me away. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's such a strange film telling a Vietnam story set in World War II. So, like, Oddball, the character that Sutherland plays, is completely out of time. Feels totally. like he just escaped from the commune rather than he's the guy who's leading this tank battalion. I mean, his character in Dirty Dozen was much more of a straight shooter, even though he was in jail for reasons. But yeah, this is uh, it's wild to see just how strange of a film this is, I suppose. One of the interesting things about it, you say that it's something that could be shown on daytime TV and it's not offensive at all, but... It is also very much a product of its time in the sense that you could never have made a movie like, like at least in terms of mainstream American cinema, you could never have made a movie like this in the 50s for two reasons. First, because it goes against that mainstream propaganda view that the United States definitely had, but that many other allied countries did as well, where you have to sort of present everything in black and white terms, where the allied soldiers are heroic, and the Nazis or the Axis soldiers are evil. And in this movie, it's like no one is heroic. And there's that really funny stuff with uh, General Archie Bunker, <laughs> who <laughs> who basically has all that great dialogue towards the end where he talks about how he's never seen soldiers this motivated. And like, of course, we know that they're not motivated because they have some sort of moral stance, but it's because they want the damn gold. Because of the way it ends, where they wind up teaming up with the Nazis to get <laughs> to get the gold out of the bank that would even though it's based on a true story which I'm sure we'll talk more about later that would have been super scandalous in the late 40s or 50s to suggest that allied and axis soldiers worked together on a bank heist I didn't get a chance to show this to you guys, but I found some ads from when Kelly's Heroes got re-released in the wake of All in the Family, and some of the ads had Clint Eastwood and Archie Bunker, not Carol O'Connor, <laughs> but Archie Bunker as the co-star of this movie. I wow. mean, it's so hard to look at him and not see Archie Bunker. I was struck by just how many World War II films were still being made at the height of the Vietnam War, and how... They all seem to try to straddle the line to one extent or another in terms of like not alienating the 60s, you know, uh, baby boomer, like protest generation viewers, but like still, you know, uh, being proper war movies. Like you look at Patton or Catch-22, Castle Keep, MASH, I guess always gets grouped in there, even though it's Korea, yeah. but like they all, they all seem to be evoking either the service comedy or like some kind of, even if their motives are wrong, they're on the right side of history. So it still feels heroic, whether it's like Castle Keep, they're like defending a castle or, you know, in Kelly's Heroes, their motives are mercenary. It's, it's, it's money, but they, they're still killing Nazis. They're still 
kind of good guys. But I would think that like at the time of the Iraq war, there was like so many films being made. They were all, all flops because nobody wanted to go see a movie about the Iraq war. It was on the news all the time. But I can't imagine a film like in that period trying to appeal to anti-war protesters as well as the people that wanted to see movie stars like killing terrorists. It's crazy. If you think about the 70s in general, not just in the US, in Europe, there were like a wild number of World War II movies that all came out in like a five year period. Those movies aren't really about World War II. World War II is a stand in to talk about current events. But it always winds up being this conveniently symbolic event or series of events that it's so easy to translate into novels and scripts where you have that kind of polarity between allied and Axis forces that makes for such good film writing or at least such easy film writing. And I don't think you have the same sort of thing with the wars to come afterwards, which are a lot murkier, but it is so crazy to me that this movie does try to appeal to both of those audiences that you just mentioned. And I feel like it might be the only movie that actually openly tries to do that. We already talked a little bit about Carol O'Connor, who's this very out-of-touch general, General Colt, calling to mind a gun with his name, and that, yeah, he hears about Kelly and his band going behind them enemy lines, and he just thinks they're the most gung-ho soldiers in the world. Meanwhile, their captain is, again, completely out of touch with things. And I didn't even notice until yesterday when I was re-watching it that the captain is there as Colt is going crazy and like listening to them talking on the radio. And it's like, sir, we don't know what they're talking about. They're using codes like crap game and bank heist and all this. And meanwhile, the captain of the group is there at the general's chateau and has this armload of presents because he said he was going to go pick up some gifts for the general. And he's just standing there with this arm full of presents, not able to do much of anything other than just kind of like scooch himself in near the radio. And this whole thing of the captain finding a boat and wanting to move this boat from where they're at in, I guess, Germany or the right-hand side, the eastern front of uh, France, and wants it transported to Paris. And there's even more of that, I think, in the script as far as like him finding this boat and wanting to move it over. And, and I should say it's a yacht. It's not a boat. So it's like he's he is plundering from the war. General uh, Colt is definitely plundering from the war. He's living in splendor in the chateau. And yet all the grunts, Kelly, Big Joe, Little Joe, all of these guys they're not getting anything. And it's like, okay, we're going to take ours now. That is an angle of the war, really any war, but specifically World War II, that is the sort of thing that makes people uncomfortable, even now, to some degree, is to suggest that people were not fighting in the war because they had a particular moral conviction, but they were fighting in the war because they had no other choice. And were there basically trying to survive and trying to make life a little more bearable, a little more more tolerable. 
So I think these sorts of more subversive kinds of mainstream narratives that suggest that, yeah, people are there maybe doing a good thing fighting fascism, but they're also just regular people who aren't necessarily here because they signed up to be here. And so they're trying to make the best of a bad situation. And that's one of the things that I think this movie does so well as compared to something like Where Eagles Dare, where it's just like some normal guys who don't really understand why they're there. They understand why they're there, but they don't seem to really respect any of the leadership. And I love so much that 10 minutes into the movie, neither do we. So we we get why everybody is so quick to kind of go along with Kelly because they respect him. And he's also saying, all right, instead of just like sitting here in squalor and the cold rain and discomfort in France, let's actually do something and, you know, not get killed or at least have a reason for getting killed. If you didn't have Kelly and you just had that group of characters, it would feel a lot more like not necessarily like inmates in an asylum, but like the the comedy of just the situation would probably be more apparent because almost everyone else is more of a broadly comic character, I think, you know, of, of that group of guys. And I think Kelly being almost more like a traditional war movie hero, except that he's got that maybe a little bit of the resonance with like the, the Leone Western kind of characters where he is so motivated by looking out for himself that it, it it's like superficially he's like the where he goes there kind of character is like far as a – um you know, an efficient killing machine kind of soldier, but his um his motives are even more shady in this one. But I, I was thinking about that with, you know, looking at things like Castle Keep and Catch-22 and MASH also. It's like, you know, it's it's people like being put in this like uh, absurd situation and all the comedy seems to come out of that. You can't have Don Rickles show up and there not be comedy. It'd be shocking if it was the other way. It, yeah. it would be shocking if Don Rickles had been cast as Kelly. Yeah, I love Kelly's backstory, too. This whole thing of him basically refusing to fight, taking the blame for not capturing a hill. And so then it's like you, he got busted back down to private. So he really is a leader, and he's a really damn good leader, but his rank doesn't show that. And so I like when he and Telly Savalas, who's this big joke character who's Really, he's the one in charge. Like, when the captain goes away, and they say uh, uh, at least one time, like, captain never knows what we're doing anyway, you know? (laughs) Like, what happens if he comes back to this little shithole that we're supposed to stay at, and we're not here? And they're like, well, he probably thought that we got sent back to the front, because he never knows what's happening. Then we have that tension between Big Joe and Kelly. And I'd say there are some funny bits of Savalas, but... For the most part, I think Clint Eastwood is really playing the straight man to all of these other comic characters, and you need that straight man to be there because then otherwise, you're, you know, (laughs) good luck having two or three comic characters all in the same scene have Clint Eastwood acting goofy when he is talking with Oddball and Crap Game. I mean, that scene with the three of them is one of my favorites in the film. $1.6 million. What else will you need? You could probably use some armor. What are you doing up there? Hey, Kropke. The hell's that? His name's Oddball. I got three Shermans outside. Yeah, what outfit? Right now, I don't have any outfit. 
Who's your commanding officer? He got decapitated by an 88 about six weeks ago. But I mean, don't say you're sorry. He's been trying to get us killed. Ever since we landed at Omaha Beach, it's terrible. I, he hasn't reported him dead yet. You see, I've been collecting his whiskey. We see our role as essentially defensive in nature. While our armies are advancing so fast and everyone's knocking themselves out to be heroes, we are holding ourselves in reserve. In case the Krauts mount a counteroffensive which threatens Paris or, or maybe even New York, then we can move in and stop them. But for $1.6 million, we could become heroes for three days. You mentioned his backstory, and I, this is something I noticed this week while rewatching it was the, um, you know, the whole notion of friendly fire as a recurring theme in the movie. And that's something that I don't know how much it was even really talked about in 1970 as far as like the non battle deaths weren't being included in the weekly casualty lists that the public was receiving. And something like, I was at like 30, 35% of the deaths in Vietnam War were friendly fire, non-combat kind of death. So it was like a serious issue that wasn't being talked about. There was a TV movie like at the end of the 70s about it, but I don't know that that was even like a mainstream issue then. But it's like a recurring theme throughout Kelly's Heroes as far as the German soldier they kidnap he is killed by, you know, his own side and like their jeeps are destroyed by friendly fire. You know, Eastwood's character is disgraced by friendly fire. And it, you know, it's not like they hit it over the head, you know, but it is like something that, you know, as much as the looting theme is like the other kind of recurring theme in this one. It's not a theme that generally shows up in World War II movies, I think, because it was much less of an issue in that particular war. And much like you were just saying, I didn't really notice that or didn't pay attention to it as much in past viewings. But this time around, I felt like it's like every other scene. It's someone's accidentally getting shot by other American soldiers. Part of what makes that sense of absurdist comedy work so well is the idea of how... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Aside from Clint Eastwood's character, it kind of feels like all d- inmates in the asylum is this sense that there's a total communication breakdown and nobody knows what the hell is going on. And the only character in the whole movie who is really able to organize communication is Kelly. I even love that line of dialogue from the general where <laughs> right before he gets on the radio, he's screaming at his communications officer about how he's like, I have a communications officer who can't communicate. You're like a war censor. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I think it's the communications officer that's supposed to be able to provide him with the aerial photographs. And then the next time you see those aerial photographs, it's they're all spread out and you've got Oddball looking at them. I'm surprised that Oddball's commander wasn't actually fragged by Oddball and his group. Because I imagine he was a much more of a straight shooter than these guys. Because Oddball and his crew are like a hippie band just all hanging around <laughs> like a the commune. first time we see them <laughs> it is just amazing like guy a guy going around just pouring wine and women just in kind of states of of disrobement and the only one that's actually doing any work is moriarty and that's probably why he's so, always in such a bad mood they really steal the film and i don't <laughs> i don't know how many people listening to this will have seen little murders it's this really great film, I think also from 1970 or 1971, where it's like every once in a while, Donald Sutherland plays these like crazy hippie characters. Like he kind of does it as the teacher in Animal House. He also does it. He has this cameo in Little Murders where the film is basically about these two people in New York who are complete opposites. They seem to not like each other but they wind up getting together romantically. And there's this, <laughs> there's this wedding scene <laughs> where Donald Sutherland plays this, this like chaplain or a, a minister or something. And he's just this like crazy hippie who doesn't believe in religion. He doesn't believe in anything. And he gives this like 10 minute monologue to marry them in their ceremony that just totally steals the film. And it's, it's almost like a continuation of his character here. There's often so much sham about this business of marriage. Everyone accepts it. Ritual. That's why I was so heartened when Alfred asked me to perform this ceremony. He has certain beliefs, which I assume you all know. He is an atheist, which is perfectly all right. Really it is. I happen not to be, but inasmuch as this ceremony connotes an abandonment of ritual in the search for truth, I agreed to perform it. First, let me state to you, Alfred, and to you, Patricia, that of the 200 marriages that I have performed, all but seven have failed. So the odds are not good. We don't like to admit it, especially at the wedding ceremony, but it's in the back of all our minds, isn't it? How long will it last? We all think that, don't we? We don't like to bring it out in the open, but we all think that. Well, I say, why not bring it out in the open? Why does one decide to marry? Social pressure? Boredom? Loneliness? Sexual appeasement? Love? I won't put any of these reasons down. Each in its own way is adequate. Each is all right. Last year, I married a musician who wanted to get married in order to stop masturbating. Please don't be startled. I'm not putting him down. That marriage did not work. But the man tried. He is now separated, still masturbating, but he is at peace with himself because he tried society's way. So you see, it was not a mistake. It turned out all right. His dialogue, it, it almost makes you feel bad for some of the other actors who have comedic roles because you, they just can't compete. Like it sort of makes me think of those, uh, 
those anecdotes from the Wild Bunch set where it's like everybody's constantly trying to one up each other <laughs> in their different scenes. But here it's it's Donald Sutherland. Just he just steals it. Oh, it's a railroad bridge, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I'm beautiful. We swing down onto the railroad tracks and right over the mother bridge. And over the mother bridge. Sure. Suppose the bridge ain't there. Oh, man. Don't hit me with them negative waves so early in the morning. Think that bridge will be there. Mm-hmm. And it'll be there. It's a mother beautiful bridge. And it's gonna be there. Donald Sutherland, who was on the verge of death before they started actual shooting, like he came over to Yugoslavia, got spinal meningitis, they sent him to England, he was in a coma, they were getting ready to send a telegraph to his wife that he died, and then he gets better and comes back and gives his performance. And his wife was arrested for trying to buy grenades for the Black Panthers with a personal check during the shooting of... Kelly's heroes as well, which further adds to his counterculture credibility. But they are both so awesome. I mean, I love Donald Sutherland so much. He is one of those actors who he kind of weirded me out when I was a kid, and I would see him in things like Kelly's Heroes and, and Animal House. <laughs> but I don't, I don't know what it is. If, if he just has this like impish look on his face all the time, like he's up to no good. I mean, with the wine and everything, he's like Dionysus, you know? He is. He, he's just, it, I wouldn't be surprised if he had goat legs under his, his jerkin, you know? It, it's just amazing. He's doing this thing with his voice, and he's got this big beard going on in the, like, the flight type helmet. And then he's got, uh, I think him and pretty much everybody in his group all have iron crosses yes. uh, on their necks. I just love his look. Just everything about his performance. And then when he starts to woof towards the end. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I, the, yeah, the barking is one of the best things in the whole movie. But the accent makes me crazy. And if, if it was anyone, <laughs> if it was anyone other than Donald Sutherland doing it, I don't think I could handle it. But he just, his dialogue, it really, it's so unique. It sort of seems... Like, I guess I could see why people maybe didn't like this as much as MASH, because it is way more ridiculous and way more. I mean, Where Eagles Dare, which for anyone who doesn't know, is also by Brian Hutton, the the same director. But while I think Where Eagles Dare is a much more competent heist movie, and much more serious and suspenseful and has all these great action sequences. I like Kelly's heroes more because it is much more, it's just a lot funnier and the characters are a lot more personable, but their dialogue, it's so well cast that everyone's dialogue is really well suited with the particular actor. But like that scene at the end where (laughs) Donald Sutherland says that with his money, he's going to buy the tank. <laughs> and I think I think it's Don Rickles who was like, but the tank is a piece of shit. It doesn't work. <laughs> it's like he doesn't really care about the money. It seems like he just wanted an adventure. 
you mentioned the, the iron cross that he wears, and I was wondering if that was meant to tie him to biker movies, because I think this would have been right around the time that the AIP biker movie wave would have been winding down when Easy Rider was 69, and that's the same year they were shooting this. And I think in interviews, Donald Sutherland was talking about if Oddball was a real person, he might be the leader of a cycle gang. And I wasn't sure if that was part of his influence was... Because when I watched the first time I watched it, I was thinking, he reminded me of like Maynard G. Krebs from the um, Dobie Gillis show, like the parody of beatnik behavior, but like just that idea of like this spacey, lazy, nonconformist comedy character. Because there wouldn't have been that many hippies in Hollywood movies prior to this. And even something like MASH, which kind of got grouped with counterculture, like they're still not technically hippies, even though they, you know, they smoke weed in the movie and like they're anti-authority, but they're not quite coded as hippie the way Oddball is. But I'm trying to think of what would have been the point of reference. Uh, but I'm wondering if maybe like the the, the biker movies would have been part of what informed that character. I was thinking of like um, just the notion of anti-war hippies being put in a military situation too, because that seems like such weird counterintuitive way of selling it to an anti-war generation is to make him a guy blowing away people in a tank <laughs> as your, as your hippie stand in. It just seems like the riskiest idea to appeal to young people. But I guess, you know, cause that's an element I never knew about, you know, until I saw it recently. I always assumed it was a, you know, a Clint Eastwood film or even like knowing that Telly Savalas, who I know from like Kojak or Dirty Dozen, like more of like a, a straight ahead guy's guy kind of movie and like, Sutherland is the is the odd man out in that equation, but I think at the time it was a bigger selling point because he was coming right off of Mash, and he would have been like the new thing, like the new way to sell it to to young people. All the advertising seemed to like play up the counterculture connection, but now that part is probably the part that isn't really appealing to the the main fan base of Kelly's Heroes. It is the people that return to it as like an idiosyncratic war movie, but a war movie is you know what I think people primarily know it to be and love it for. I've never thought about that connection to biker movies, but I could totally see in a sort of extended fantasy universe, Oddball's gang, after they leave the war, going and becoming the crazy biker gang in the first Billy Jack movie. <laughs> they're, they're basically the same people. It's funny that you say Billy Jack because I also thought of Billy Jack in a very roundabout way because they both have those kind of like groovy pop single kind of theme songs in a way that is like trying to sell the idea of like an ass kicking hippie, you know, because Billy Jack, you know, Vietnam vet, but like, you know, kind of a, you know, groovy peace knit kind of character until you cross him, you know, and it's like the same kind of thing with Sutherland is like, you know, he's your, he's your groovy buddy, but he can also, you know, blow away the Nazis. It's just such a weird thing to me that that would ever be a trope, even if it's like a limited trope. The whole thing that he has paint in his shells instead of like real shells. We got our own ammunition. It's filled with paint. When we fire it, it makes pretty pictures, scares the hell out of people. His whole thing of like having the music and stuff. And I'm just like, wow, how many years before Apocalypse Now is this? It's pretty fantastic. There's this really interesting connection between the sort of stuff that he does in Kelly's Heroes and this idea of like 
underground artist protests. Like it, it's basically like they're spreading terror through loud music and explosions and all this kind of subterfuge. Like they, they attach a pipe. So it makes it look like their gun is much bigger, a much bigger caliber than it actually is. I do really like that idea of trying to figure out who the hell this character is supposed to appeal to. Some of it might be related to the way mainstream Hollywood saw the counterculture movement in 1969, 1970 versus the way we see it now. Now it's weird to think about hippies being in a role like this, but at the time you could kind of connect it to some of the early seventies movies where like I drink your blood, where you have these hippies who are in this cult and they're just insane and violent. Maybe in a mainstream way, it seems like there's a big divide. But if you think about some of those character types in cult movies, like definitely Billy Jack and some of the crazy hippie, like post Manson movies, his character seems to be more linked to those than to the mainstream hippie movies. Well, if you look at the script, I think one thing that changed a lot was the sexuality of Kelly's heroes, the amount of nudity that was in the original script. The sexually liberated aspect of the counterculture was always the part that made the most sense to conservative viewers at that time. And I think that, like, the fact that, like, the first meet him, he's got a girl in his bed, and, yes. like, there's, like, girls hanging out with his crew, and, like, they were, you know, like, half naked in the script. I mean, it's a PG movie now, but it was, you know, a little bit racier. I think that, you know, at that time, that, that that's the time of films like Joe, you know, like all these films that have this idea of like the counterculture and free love and like, you know, it's both horrified and attracted to that element of it. And I think that Kelly's Heroes flirted with that maybe more on the page um, than in what we Wasn't get. Wasn't Ingrid Pitt supposed to be in the movie in like a big yeah. female role and then it was cut at the last minute? Yeah, there's like no female dialogue in Kelly's Heroes. No, which is fascinating because I mean – if you think about this as a companion piece to Where Eagles Dare, she has a pretty big role in that. But it does it. One of my biggest frustrations with the film is I feel like it's way too long. And so if you were going to include more sexual content or female characters, like would it feel even more bloated than it does now? I mean, I, I don't really know the answer to that, but it seems like it wouldn't make sense to have side characters unless they were directly involved with the bank heist in some way. Yeah, I think what you probably would have gotten would have been like a uh, Dirty Dozen kind of like, you know, gallery of horrors, or same with Castle Keep yeah. as well. Like it would have been, you know, that would have been the only function they would have had in the script. So it, I don't really miss them, but it is weird that there are not even any female characters that talk in this movie. <laughs> I was a totally random aside was talking about Ninth Configuration earlier today, and that's another one of those totally weirdo anti-war war movies that also it just there are no women. And it's interesting to me to think about how those sorts of films play out and what the dynamic winds up being, because it's like you've got to have character tension somewhere. And when there's no way to have romantic tension it's kind of interesting to think about where it winds up instead. And here it's like there isn't so much of that because this is a comedy. But something that I didn't notice as much in past viewings is about halfway through, 
when they have that first big kind of siege that puts them past, like further past enemy lines than any of the other allied forces are, there's that sequence in the field where they kill a bunch of German soldiers and they're all a little bit taken aback by it. Like even Telly Savalas's character, it's, it's like, this isn't, it, the movie makes it clear for the first time that even though they're being very matter of fact in their dialogue about war and violence, when it actually comes down to it, it's like they don't want to do it. Well, and there was a scene that was supposed to follow that where Kelly and Big Joe are talking about, you know, how they had to leave some of their men behind in that field and they weren't able to go back and get them. And the idea of maybe not all of them were dead that were there, that they had to end up leaving them while they might have still been alive. And like Big Joe is really giving it to Kelly as far as like, you know, Eugene was a was very close to me. He was the only regular soldier in the outfit. He was the only one with what I would call a sense of duty. And we left him to rot in a lousy minefield. And then Kelly's just like, he could have bought it 50 times in the last six months, you know? And it's like this going back and forth as far as like, are you going to die for the American cause? You're going to die for our cause, or are you just going to die? This whole back and forth between the two of them, I thought was very effective. And that's one of those scenes where I'm just like, yeah, this is probably why Clint Eastwood was a little mad at the way that they recut the movie afterwards. I'm sure he probably didn't mind losing like the Germans and the the naked women swimming in a swimming hole kind of thing, because it really doesn't add that much to the film. But stuff like this, interchanges like that, I'm just like, well, yeah, that actually kind of says something that was would have been a nice thing to have. Yeah, I think it also adds to this whole anti-war kind of counterculture thing that we've been talking about, where it just, it's very confusing to have a film like this that it's like on one hand, it's a conventional war comedy. And on the other hand, it's a weird Vietnam era anti-war movie. And I think sometimes those two different ideas clash in the movie. Some of that clash is because they cut some of those scenes that you're talking about. At the very end of the script, does the gold get destroyed by one of their own rockets? Because I think that also drives home the point that it's all kind of in, in vain if they had kept that ending. I don't even know if they shot that. Yeah, are you talking about that scene where Big Joe confronts him about the, you know, the value of the entire exercise? And it's also right after another scene that was uh, not included where the, the men's kind of mutiny a little bit and they, they're, they're pushing back on it. And so all of this drama that really kind of changes the vibe of the whole film is all missing. And I think that's why, yeah, you said Eastwood was upset. I know he also wasn't, I don't know if he had the greatest sense of humor about the Leone parody at the end. I mean, I don't think we could say that Clint Eastwood has a great sense of humor, period. Except when he has a chimpanzee. (laughs) Except for when he is alone on stage with a chair. Bill, you are 100% correct that there is that I don't know if it's the same P-47 that shot them, uh, shot at them earlier in the script, but it is definitely a P-47 that comes barreling towards them. The truck breaks, the men abandon them in panic, the plane screams down and down, the men reaching for safety turn, wheel, yell, and screech at the oncoming bomber, intercut, Big Joe, Little Joe, Gutowski, and group. Finally, Kelly stands watching the plane and philosophically... <laughs> 
Shake shakes his head, the P-47 pulling out at maximum speed levels for the attack from the pilot's POV, the onrushing targets, the gold glinting, close up the P-47, its rockets fire, immediately freeze frame, the end. Yeah, because that gives a kind of like the original Ocean's Eleven kind of vibe, where like the the riches at the end are destroyed, and it becomes case. Well, like you know that caper was all for naught, but you know didn't we have fun along the way? Like that kind of, <laughs> that kind of ending. But you know, just the whole notion of is this an anti-war film? Because you know the way we have it now, everyone walks away rich, and like you know a few a few people get taken down along the way, but for the most part, everyone is better off than before we met them. You know, I understand like it's it's showing a, a cynical vision of their motives, but do you think that, you know, somebody walking uh, away from that, like an audience member would think like, well, this is clear that war is wrong? I see what you mean. And I guess maybe it's not that there's this clear war is wrong message, but the message is that war is pointless and war is meaningless. And all of the protests around Vietnam, for the most part, are like, why are we there? What is the objective? People are getting lucky land casino asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Over 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Killed for no reason. This war is never going to end. There's no kind of clear resolution that could play out. But I think for World War II, it's the opposite, where there is sort of this clear anti-fascist, anti-Axis powers in general goal that went behind so much of the Western uh, Allied propaganda. And the clear objective, of course, is defeating Hitler or defeating Hirohito or whichever, you know, theater you want to focus on. And so... I think what makes it feel anti-war to me, looking at it through the lens of World War II and World War II movies, is that it's one of the few World War II films that basically says this war, despite its clear objective and the sort of moral issues behind it, the whole connection to genocide, it's saying this war is pointless. Like, why is everyone here? Nothing is happening. No one can communicate. Nobody knows where they're supposed to be going or what they're supposed to be doing. So, you know, you have these people who are just going to kind of make the best of a bad situation and they just happen to get lucky, which I still can't believe that this is based on a real story. Like, I can't, knowing humans, I can. But <laughs> the fact that they got away with it is just incredible. Yeah, what, they were covered two bars from all the gold that was stolen, I think? Yeah, and I think not until, what, like, the the late 70s or something? 
Yeah, and it wasn't even validated until I read earlier, 97. Yeah, I'm sure everybody that took the rest of the gold have had a pretty merry life. Well earned. A, it was Nazi gold, so it deserves to be stolen. But also the fact that when they went to write the script and like heard rumors of this heist, but they still weren't able to get any clear information because there either wasn't any or it was all still highly classified is amazing. Yeah, I know Troy Kennedy Martin, who, who you were talking about trying to find out more about this heist that actually happened. He had even talked about adding more gravitas to the script, like the one that, that we've read from June, July of 69. I think there was an earlier draft, one from May, that was even harder. And I think that's probably the one that got Eastwood really engaged in this. And I don't know if it was in the script or if he just talked about it, but he was talking about writing a scene of like a train going to Auschwitz kind of thing and the men seeing the train and then having a decision point, like, do we go stop the train or do we continue on? I think that would have completely, pardon the pun, derailed the film because it'd be like, what the fuck are you doing after gold when all of these lives are being lost? Because it's a good thing where they're at and that they don't see the atrocities. Cause otherwise it'd be like, man, I have no respect for these guys. But as it is, it's like, they're just having a fun jaunt, you know, even though they're going across this freshly plowed field that obviously has landmines in it, probably a dumb thing to do, but at least they're a happy band, and they don't have to worry about the atrocities of war too much. The script you're talking about, I mean, would have been Don Siegel attached originally, too. And so I, I don't think of him as a comedy director. I think you could have potentially had a much all-around harder film, you know, had they, you know, gone in the original uh, – with the original concept, original team. But, I mean, I, I don't know what that would have looked like. Probably very different. Probably not uh, – you know, we probably would not have the oddball we know and love today. And that would be a crime. You mentioned the pop song, the Burning Bridges song, and it is, <laughs> it's so unusual. I mean, you've got like the Lalo Schifrin score, and there's a lot of different things that he's doing with that. That You've got the section that he said was basically a parody of uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. So you've got the whistling and all this kind of stuff. It's a great, great song. And then, yeah, he does the Spaghetti Western Morricone riff towards the end, which the first time I saw that, I just was laughing so hard. And then they do, it was him and, and I can't remember the name of the musician that did the Burning Bridges song. Mike Curb. Thank you. And it was them working together. So it's got like this great introduction which sounds very much like this marching music and it's really really good and uh, i'll play later on in the show i'll play a um a dj green lantern did a remix of a beastie boys song and he used that little opening of burning bridges to go against the beastie boys which was fantastic but yeah and then the the singers the mike curb singers start up and it's just like what am I watching? And it happens like what three or four times in the movie, even like at in least, the end credits. Yeah. At least it's better than raindrops keep falling on my head. Because <laughs> I honestly can't watch Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid anymore because of that scene. Like I need to do a director's cut or a fan edit of that and cut that fucking scene out because I just can't stand it. 
Kelly's Heroes had, I want to say there was at least two major regime changes at MGM between when they started the film and when it came out. Mike Curb was like 25 at the time, and I guess he got hired with that is it James Aubrey? I think that is the guy's name. But he got hired in like that regime that put it out. But he was somebody that was, he had a tendency to add pop songs to MGM's films, including ones that he wrote himself in order to generate hit singles for the films. I, he needed that to Zabriskie point too, the Antonioni film. So I always thought that was so strange. Like the first time I watched, I'm like, what is this song about? Like, why is this here? I was thinking about the lyrics too, because the lyrics are about like severing ties with old friends and not appreciating the good things that they did. And I'm like, how does this apply to Kelly's Heroes? Other it than doesn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there are little there are literal bridges that are destroyed, but I don't know if they represent like friendship. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, it it makes no sense, but that in itself is kind of funny. Like, it's, I don't think it's meant to be funny. I don't think it's intentionally in that way. It just is ridiculous. Yeah, Mike Kerb, um, I, 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 I learned that he uh, wrote, like, campaign songs for Nixon and Reagan. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, that worked, too. Both of them got elected. But, um, yeah, I was thinking about how, like, in the, in the screenplay we read, that opening where Kelly kidnaps the German soldier – plays like an action scene, but having burning bridges play underneath it <laughs> like robs it of all tension it could have. And it just feels like weird. It just feels weird. Like and I don't know if that was a I don't know at what point they made that the strategy, if that was like, we've got to get, you know, this mass generation in and this is how we do it. But they definitely went with a choice to make this more counterculture friendly from the outset. But I feel like that's the vibe of the whole movie is what you just said, where it's it's just weird. And you spend the whole time kind of wondering, who is this for? <laughs> like, what is happening here? Just back to Oddball, just thinking of him and his whole power positive thinking thing, you know? It's just <laughs> like him and Moriarty. That's Those are probably my favorite bits in the film, is just watching Sutherland and McLeod going back and forth. I mean, I don't know how many times I quote that whole negative waves thing, but it is just fucking fantastic. And yeah, it it's makes so good. no sense. I love it. I would like to think that Donald Sutherland improvised some of that dialogue. That might not be true, but you can't convince me otherwise. It's not in the script. And I, I wanted to just give a shout out to my favorite bit of business he did, which is the line where he learns that uh, Kelly had like accidentally like killed people on their side and he just starts laughing uh, you know <laughs> <Yes>. like, <laughs> before he like his line is like i don't like officers but like the way he laughs about this horrible thing and like the look on don rickles face as like he realizes he's dealing with like this madman is my favorite moment for oddball there's also the great that great during that same scene there's the great moment where Donald Sutherland says, I don't like officers. And I forget who is telling him about Kelly, but the, the, their response is like, well, he doesn't either. There is stuff about the negative waves in the script, like Moriarty. Don't tell Oddball or he'll start in with that crap about negative waves. My favorite of the moments 
or one of one of my favorite moments with him is when the tank breaks down and Moriarty is fixing it. And he says that line that I said in the very beginning of this episode where Telly Savalas comes up and basically says, what are you doing? And he says, drinking wine, eating cheese, and soaking up rays. The look that Telly Savalas gets on his face is like he's in actual physical pain. This is like, why do I have to deal with this person? But I have to say, as far as key dialogue goes, I think Carol O'Connor almost competes with Donald Sutherland. They're probably my single favorite line in the entire movie is at the end when the general is approaching the town where the bank heist is. The French people confuse him or I guess... It might be like, I think they're supposed to be maybe in the Alsace area because they seem to be French people, but I I know that they're actually supposed to be in German-occupied territory. They think that de Gaulle is on the way to liberate them, and somebody somebody tells the general that they've confused him with de Gaulle, and he, he lets out this like quick little line where he says, de Gaulle, he's not even in this war. <laughs> <laughs> I love Telly Savalas constantly ripping on Don Rickles and calling him Hustler. I don't know what it is, but just the way he says Hustler it's just like, it's like a little knife wound every time he does it. (laughs) (laughs) And there's the the great scene where uh, Don Rickles is wounded and Telly Savalas shows some like genuine concern and then Don Rickles makes fun of him and and he's like, well fine then, and walks away. Right. Apparently, Telly Savalas got stabbed during the making of the movie. One of the guys had his bayonet, was too sharp, and sliced Savalas in the arm. And so you can tell it during the movie, like whether he has his sleeves rolled up or sleeves rolled down, because he got cut right on the arm. So they had to rush him to the hospital. Blood was gushing out. People are going crazy. <laughs> and he's just like, can somebody help me out here? Come on. Like, it's just a flesh wound. That's something that I I wasn't able to appreciate the way uh, viewers at the time would have not had, I don't think, any other opportunities to see Telly Savalas as a heroic character. Because I think before this, he would have just specialized in villain parts. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I think of like Lisa and the Devil and things like that. And um, obviously him, God, his turn as Maggot in the Dirty Dozen is so fucking fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I think... Birdman of Alcatraz? Yes, and Kojak doesn't start until like three or four years later, which as as we record this, I'm facing a Kojak doll and packs of commemorative bubblegum <laughs> with Telly Savalas on as Kojak on them. Yeah, and I guess he was Blofeld right before Blofeld somewhere right around here as well. Yes, I think that's, is that 71? I think it's 69. I want to say it was pre-70s. He is fantastic in there. I still haven't seen McKenna's Gold, which I know he's in as well, but I've heard that that's good as well, so I need to check that out. Definitely need a lot more Telly Savalas in my life. Yes, you should probably do a Telly Savalas month at some point, with all your free time. I don't know if it's in the script or not, but it's not in the script that we... It it wasn't in the script that we uh, read, but uh, he has a line when the guy comes to bring him news about their their mission, and his line is, take the underwear off your head, enough is enough. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I, I'd like to believe that that was his contribution to the improvisation of the thing. I hope so, because when he says it, he sounds so disgusted. <laughs> the thing where Crap Game, the Don Rickles character, is talking to Lieutenant Babra, or, or whatever Barbara. his rank is. <laughs> yeah, that whole thing is not in the script. So that little exchange there, which is a strange exchange <laughs> about, you like your mo- you love your mother? You miss your mother? <laughs> <laughs> and then he, he barely acknowledges his presence. So Don Rickles just is like, okay, then nice talking to you and walks away. <laughs> that scene where he's on the phone also, and he's like, ask, and don't start crying yet. I haven't even asked you yet. Like th- those feel like improv scenes that they just told Rickles to just make a funny scene out of nothing. Cause yeah, I, I don't think that that scene with, with Barbara is, uh, is scripted. And, and, and I just wanted to note that Barbara, like, I don't know if you agree with me. He reminds me of like, um, almost like a Mickey Rooney, Andy Hardy type of character. Like his comic delivery feels like a screwball comedy. Like what his character and some of the other ones feel almost like an, like of, of, of a war comedy from like two or three decades earlier. And I, I always thought that was such a strange kind of, you know, blend with like the, the Sutherland stuff, which feels like more contemporary. I don't know if you also got that vibe. Yes. And I think that's part of what makes this so weird is that sometimes it seems like it wants to be a conventional World War II comedy, like the sort of thing coming out in the 50s and early 60s, like something like Operation Petticoat. And then all of a sudden, it's this weird, hippie, Donald Sutherland causing chaos movie. And it's it's like, what is this? Pick a tone. <laughs> I love it for its faults rather than hate it. But if somebody told me they hated this movie, I'd be like, yeah, sure. I can completely get behind that. I completely understand why you would hate this. My thing is, I always find flawed movies that try to do something interesting more fascinating than movies that are just perfect like they're just more fun to talk about and with this i don't know if i could under i mean between donald sutherland who i am in love with and telly savalas my number one childhood crush like i don't see how somebody could hate this movie because they're both just so great but it it is long. And I, I think some of those like battle sequences, it's like, all right, we could probably edit about half an hour out of the movie if those were tightened up. It is long. And yeah, you do get Burning Bridges playing quite a few times. You do, but you get the fake jangling spurs at the end. <laughs> oh, God. And I love the guy that plays the main Nazi. He has such a great look to him. Just that scar on his face and that he barely opens his eyes. It almost looks like his eyes have been sewn shut. Part of what I love so much about that character, even though he has just a very brief role, is I think we're taught to expect, especially through mainstream media, that Nazis were always ideologically obsessed with the political movement with Hitler, they were in the war to, you know, kill Jews and take over the world. But like, the truth is that the majority of Nazis would just were there because they were conscripted. And so I do think you had a lot of people like that character who's like, well, I'm here. And me and all of my friends are being slaughtered. So I'm just going to try to survive. And he's like, you know what, 
fuck it. And I love the that editing in that scene with him is so great because they don't even show him responding. Kelly and Joe sort of pitch to him this idea that we're doing this bank heist. You you could help us by blowing a hole through the doors of that bank, and it immediately cuts to the doors being blown open. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's like he turns his head and looks, and rather than it being a, a POV shot of what he's seeing, it suddenly becomes the bank exploding. It's just like, wow, that is nice. I love that subtlety Like, there. he That's didn't so even good. have to think yeah. about it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Big Joe is the only character that needs any persuading to steal things in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and he's the opposite of Oddball in every way. Yes, I haven't seen the film, so I and I wasn't get a, I didn't get a chance to watch it in time. But I don't know if either of you have seen the Young Lions. But I've read that that German tank uh, commander uh, was supposed to be a parody of the Brando character from the Young Lions. <laughs> no, I haven't seen that, but now I have to. I can kind of see the the look. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Yeah, both the appearance and the manner of speaking were apparently that's an inside joke or a, a reference. But I I hadn't seen the young line, so I couldn't validate huh. that. But what okay. I want to yeah. know is where the hell Oddball's accent is supposed to be from. He's he's based on the real guy that pulled off the heist. <laughs> I think that's you know the, the only historically accurate part of Kelly's hero. <laughs> that should be on the poster. One hundred percent historically accurate. I would love it if somebody like opened those confidential depositions and it just has all these lines like, look, I was just trying to fight off the negative waves. Look, Kelly, a tiger has only one weak point. That's its ass. You've got to hit it point blank and you've got to hit it from behind. Now, we do not have the element of surprise. They will hear our Detroit motors long before we ever even get inside that town. And what if I can show you a way to get into that town so they don't hear you? Hey, Oddball, this is your hour of glory, and you're checking it out. To a New Yorker like you, a hero is some type of weird sandwich, not some nut who takes on three tigers. Nobody's asking you to be a hero. No? Then you sit up in that turret, baby. No, because you're going to be up there, baby, and I'll be right outside showing you which way to go. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> crazy i mean like so many positive ways maybe we can't lose you're on clint eastwood and telly savalas exchange a look like oh christ <laughs> have either of you seen a movie called brass target no that's from 1978 it's also mgm it's john uh is it who or how um but he it, it's also based on that same um nazi gold uh theft idea but it's um it's based on the robbery of the Nazi gold and the conspiracy to kill Patton. Sophia Loren, Cassavetes, John Cassavetes, um, George Kennedy, Max von Sydow. It has a, like a pretty, wow. uh, prestigious cast, but I've never he like heard of it until I was looking into the real life case and saw that there was another film inspired by that same thievery towards the end of World War II and also the same studio as Kelly's Heroes. That sounds amazing just from yeah, the that cast, cast itself. I would love to imagine Max von Sydow as Oddball. Why are you hitting me with these negative ways? <laughs> <laughs> but in my in my head, he would be a lot like his character in uh, the great, uh, basically beer version of Hamlet with Rick Moranis. Oh, a strange brew. Yes, 
It would be like his character in Strange Brew, except mixed with... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino's home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oddball. <laughs> well, let's go ahead, guys, and take a break, and we're going to play a trio of interviews. First up, we'll hear the rest of our interview with John Landis that we did a few months ago. This is all about his work on Kelly's Heroes. After that, we'll hear from Little Joe, Stuart Margolin. And last but not least, we'll hear from Moriarty himself, Gavin McLeod. And we'll be back with all of those right after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy sexy piece of lingerie or anything you desire just enter offer code booth at checkout and you'll get all 10 free gifts go check out adamandeve.com today select one item and get 10 free gifts including free shipping when you enter offer code booth that's b-o-o-t-h at adamandeve.com It's not easy having a good time. And it's not cheap, either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superb Man episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year 
at least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That surprise of two matinee tickets. Now, isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do. Hi, this is Andrew from We Hate Movies, and you're listening to The Projection Booth. If you feel like laughing after listening to some serious film discussion, head on over to our show, whmpodcast.com. Every Tuesday, a new episode drops, us ragging on bad movies, whereas the good folks here at The Projection Booth are talking about good, hearty, cinema-related stuff. Go here for the cinema. Come to us for the laughs afterwards. We Hate Movies every Tuesday. Could you tell me what your experiences were like working on Kelly's Heroes? Oh, pretty wonderful and insane. That's really, even though I had jobs on other little movies and stuff, but that's really the first feature big Hollywood, you know, or big European, I don't know, MGM, big movie. I mean, that was a big movie, and uh, it was shot behind the Iron Curtain, and uh, it was wonderful. I was nine months in what's now well it was it's the former yugoslavia and tito was alive very different you know the cold war was really something and uh in 1969 it was you know alive and well and uh, you know the ruskies were the bad guys and there was the berlin wall and after world war ii basically there was a thing called the marshall plan and the united states really did kind of finance the reconstruction of Europe. I mean, Germany was leveled in World War II. It was destroyed completely. And Czechoslovakia and Hungary and Poland. And it was very extremely devastating in Europe. And in the former Yugoslavia, it was really bad. However, when the war was finished, they started the Marshall Plan. And slowly but surely, I mean, Paris and France rebuilt and England rebuilt and Spain under Franco (laughs) rebuilt. And, you know, things started to improve tremendously. So by the 60s, if you were in Western Europe or on, you know, the west side of the wall, basically, it was like, you know, James Bond movies. (laughs) It looked, you know, things were coming back, although... When I went to make an American werewolf in London, and that was 1980, the vast majority of, of buildings in uh, England, now everybody's got a shower, but then if you wanted a shower, you sort of went to a hotel, and even then, a modern hotel, a new hotel. But the other side of the Iron Curtain, it really was if, it was like 1946, 1947, it, because you, you know, it was bombed out. You went to, Prague or Warsaw or, you know, it was really, you know, Budapest bombed out. It was like, holy shit. (laughs) The war was very uh, present. And in Yugoslavia, because it was Tito, so it wasn't under Soviet domination, but it still was there. You know, the Russians were there. It was kind of amazing because... I don't know if it's in the Billy Wilder movie one, two, three, or some other Peter Sellers or 
Peter O'Toole movie. I've forgotten, but there's one, there's some movie where they you see like this streets are filled with people and wild parties and confetti and bright lights and music and everyone dancing and you know there's wild you know, champagne and then you sort of the camera pans over to this big wall and goes up over the wall and on the other side of the wall it's dark and gray and wet cobblestones and only soldiers and depressing and you go back over the wall and it's whoopee and and it, you know, that's a gross exaggeration, but it was very good metaphor. It was quite something. And so to go to Yugoslavia was wild. <laughs> I was 18 too, but it was like, holy shit, you know, big soldiers with jack boots and Kalashnikovs and big hammers and sickles everywhere <laughs> and hardly any food. It was incredibly poor. Then here comes this MGM movie, you know, and it had a British camera crew. It had British grips, British electric, German-Austrian special effects, British makeup and hair, and French, Italian uh, stills, Italian wardrobe. It was a very international crew. The American director, American stars, it was uh, Clint Eastwood, Telly Savalas, Don Sutherland, I mean, he's Canadian, but he's American. Don Rickles, that's where I met all those guys. <laughs> and uh, it was a wonderful time. I mean, I loved it because I had all the joy and excitement of making a big production and working on a huge show with thousands of Yugoslav soldiers dressed as Nazis or dressed as GIs. It was big and huge. You know, we were blowing buildings up. A lot of the buildings we blew up were real. They just, you know, they just bought them and blew them up. It was wonderful. But I had, so I had all the pleasure and excitement, but none of the responsibility. Uh, technically, I guess I was what was, what was then called a gopher and now called a PA. Because of the unusual circumstances of that movie, I really had a tremendous amount of responsibility, <laughs> more than I ever should have. I mean, during the nine months we shot in Yugoslavia, MGM changed management, I think, four times, three or four times. So we're this huge movie, and the director, Brian Hutton, is kind of a wild man. <laughs> Long hair, and black cowboy hat, black sweater. He was wild, and it, it was nuts. It was really fun and nuts. It was a very entertaining time and for a little you know innocent 18 year old me it was a real eye-opener <laughs> I mean, it was like whoa <laughs> everything that could happen did happen on that movie so it was wonderful for me i don't think it was very good for the stockholders of mgm but it did end up becoming quite a hit it did okay in the states but in england it was like number two picture of the year and the movie's terribly odd. It's a deeply weird movie. Yeah, you have a hippie in World War II. And, and there were some very funny things that don't play and were kind of cut out of the movie. That It had such bizarre... Even, even being a kid on the set, there were moments when I went, this doesn't make any sense. I mean, they're, 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 they're trooping through enemy territory. And like, look, there's an open plowed field. Let's walk across that. It was like no cover. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And like what? You know, I kept saying, but why are they? Why would they? They would never like, John, shut up. <laughs> and then a guy blows up and they're all is very serious. And you're going, well, how can you be serious? We're just, I mean, the movie had a tone issue, but it was uh, had wonderful things in it. And Don uh, Don Rickles, who was there with his wife and baby daughter, Mindy. I was one of the few people who knew who he was because, you know, the Brits and the French and the Yugoslavs, Don Rickles, who the fuck is that? I mean, he's a very, very American comedian. He's not known anywhere else. He was so funny. They'd do a scene and, and Clint would finish and Rickles would go, Brian, you're going to print that? You're going to walk away? That's it? That's it? What are you going to super, you're going to animate over Eastwood? He was so funny, but... In the movie, his character, is something I remember, in the movie, his character, uh, Crap Game is his name, is supposed to be carrying, he has to schlep a 50 caliber machine gun once it gets strafed by a Allied plane. And those things weigh a ton. <laughs> they are really heavy. The prop department made a fiberglass reproduction of a 50 caliber machine gun and it looked perfect. And the prop guy, Dave Jordan, who was props on uh, Lawrence of Arabia, <laughs> this English guy, great stories. Anyway, he said, John, take this to Rickles. So I'm carrying the 50 caliber machine gun, but it weighs maybe two pounds. You know, it's a, a model for, for Rickles to carry. And the director, Brian Hutton, says, Landis, what the fuck is that? And I said, look, it looks great. I'm going to give it to Don instead of carrying something that weighs 300 pounds on his shoulder. Maybe he could just. And so Brian takes the gun, says to me, put it in my trailer. And if you tell Rickles about this, I'll, I'll break your fucking leg. And for the whole movie, Rickles is schlepping 300 pounds. In fact, in the movie, you see him complaining about it. I got to carry this goddamn. You know, it's like, I got to. And he's complaining about it all the time. And everyone thought it was so funny, but I was, I don't know, it just bothered me. I kept saying, you know, Brian, that's really, shut up, Landis. You know, it was a wonderful experience for me. I was a mailboy at Fox, and I knew a man named Andrew Marton, um, who was called Bundy Marton, B-A-N-D-I, Hungarian, American, but Hungarian. He was one of the many people who came to flee Hitler. You know, Bundy was very successful director at UFA started it in Germany, started in silence, and he was actually cutting a picture in the cutting room next to Letty Riffenstahl, who's cutting Triumph of the Will. And the brown shirts are rising, and it's getting weirder and weirder. Fritz Long, who was running, you know, came into his cutting room, and he said, Bundy, I think we have to get out of here. Bundy says, why? He said, I have a bad feeling. And Fritz just left, 
he flew to Hollywood, you know. And so Bundy was one of the few Jews left, and his editor was a communist, a member of the Communist Party. And one day he came to work in a brown shirt, and Bundy said, what the fuck is this? And he said, Bundy, don't worry, I'm a roast beef Nazi. Bundy says, what is a roast beef Nazi? And the guy says, I'm brown on the outside, but red on the inside. And he said, you know, he would be fired to keep his job. He had to join the party. So Bundy picked up the phone, called his wife, the army lot, and he said, pack one bag. I'll be there in 20 minutes. They got in the car and they drove all the way to the Swiss border and went into Switzerland and they closed the border like 10 hours later. He would have been dead if he had stayed. And uh, he ended up in Hollywood and like everybody and Bundy. Andrew Marton, but his most famous credit, which is pathetic, but is the chariot race in Ben-Hur, because Bundy became a second unit director, not because he wanted to, you know, he actually directed a lot of movies. He directed King Solomon's Mind, you know, with Stuart Granger. He directed some picture with Grace Kelly about a green fire. Um, He directed... Actually, a really interesting movie, considering what's happening right now, but it was one of the first movies shot in Germany after the war. And it was called um, The Devil Makes Three with Gene Kelly and Pierre Angele. And it's it's an interesting movie because it's about Nazis, neo-Nazis in occupied Berlin. And it, you know, I don't know if you've been following the news, but there, there's a huge Nazi resurgence in Germany in the military and especially in the police. They're wonderful. I mean, they're, I, I, you should, if you want to talk about the Blues Brothers, we should talk about the Blues Brothers. Get me going on Bundy. He was very nice to me. I met, I met him when I was 15. He directed, like, Around the World Under the Sea, <laughs> one of the Cinerama movies. And, but he directed a shitload of movies, Men of the Fighting Lady with Ronald Reagan. And, you know, and uh, he was at MGM for a long time. And, he, they started using him to direct action sequences. And in fact, Billy Wilder once said, uh, said to me, said, you know, I'm going to write a picture. And when the boss is hitting on the secretary, and finally he gets her in his office. He locks the door and he's going to chase her around the desk. But I'm going to bring in Bundy Marton to shoot the chase. So when you get a reputation like that, Hollywood's all about typecasting, you know, and so... It's like, you know, you the, you make these kind of movies or your specialty is this, which, of course, is absolute bullshit because filmmaking, whether it's a drama or a comedy or a science fiction movie or a horror film or a romance or a tragedy, whatever it is, telling a narrative by montage, meaning the juxtaposition of images to create a story, is exactly the same job, regardless of genre, regardless of budget. And by the way, motion pictures, regardless of whether it's film or digital, it's the same thing. It's put the recording device, the camera here, and you guys do this. You know, And I've always been fascinated. There's a real misnomer, which is that, you know, he can handle a big movie. What does that mean? I mean, the director's job is identical. Instead of you six guys do this, it's you 1100 guys do this. But it's the same job and the setup's the same and filmmaking if you know how to direct and tell if you have the craft down 
people say, you know, he, he specializes in horror or he specializes in comedy or he specializes, whatever. It, I find it disheartening because it limits right away the kind of work you can get. However, people like Alfred Hitchcock, they sort of embraced it finally. And then he, he polished his brand, he became the master of suspense. You know, and so that's what he did. <laughs> and it, it's just an interesting phenomenon. And I guess it's true in everything. Bundy became the big action guy. So like I, the very first movie I ever worked on, I only worked on three weeks because I hated it, was uh, Catch-22 which is a very good movie. Have you ever seen it? It's, it's really impressive. The one with um, Orson Welles. And, well, all the flying in that, those B-25s, that's all real. <laughs> and those planes landing and taking off. And that Bundy did all the flying. And I worked on the second. He gave me a job on the second unit. And I'm in the belly of a B-25. And how they fought a war in those things, I don't know, because these were all real B-25 from the war, and they were held together by gaffer tape. So you'd fly, and it would shake so violently, it would just shake as you flew, just just this constant shake. And when you landed, your jaw would hurt, and your nipples would hurt. I'm serious, because your jaw would hurt from your... And your nipples would hurt from the constant... It was weird, and very unpleasant, but... We would go up for four hours at a time and shoot formations and do all that. See the movie again. It's amazing what we did and coordinated stuff with the actions, the famous opening shot. It's amazing. Anyway, I worked on a second unit. My job, I was in a belly of a B-25 on a radio going. That was in Mexico, in, in Guaymas. I'd be going in San Carlos, actually. You know, Bendero es Roja. Bendero es... I hated it. I hated it. I kept thinking, what is this? This is traffic control. This is not so filming. And we'd be up in the air, and I'd look down there, and I'd go, down there is Mike Nichols and, you know, Orson Welles and, you know, all these amazing actors. And I'm flying around in this plane. So I quit. I, I, I just didn't like it. I was not near enough production. You know, I I was in production of flying stuff, but you know, when, anyway, so I went back to the mail room where I was closer to show shooting. And then Bundy got a job to direct all the second unit on Kelly's heroes. And he said, if you can get to Yugoslavia, I'll try to give you a job. So because I was 18, I took that as, Oh, no problem. <laughs> I took all the money I had in the world. By that time I had probably a close like a thousand dollars. Because I, I used to get paid $48 a week at Fox. You know, those, that's quite a while ago. That's in the 60s. But still, so I had about $1,000. And a one-way, I'll never forget, a one-way flight from L.A. to London was $800, TWA. And I thought, well, London can't be far from Bel. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Oh, God. You know, I, I was totally ignorant. 
completely ignorant. I knew uh, my friend's father was working on a, writing a Carl Foreman movie. So he was in London and I thought, oh, I could stay with them and then just hitchhike to, uh, by the way, that's the sixties. It's a very different time. Oh yeah. But anyway, so I told my mother, what I did was I bought the ticket and I told my mother that I had the job and she didn't believe me till I showed her the ticket. Then she believed me. Anyway, I went to, uh, took me quite a while to get there. I went to London and then anyway, I got to Belgrade and I got there before the unit. So <laughs> I was like a week in Belgrade going, <laughs> you know, it was very scary there. And I ended up working on the picture and having a wonderful time. And, and from there I went to Spain after Yugoslavia, a guy named Jim O'Rourke and I, um, he had a, a VW bug and we drove, from Belgrade to Madrid, that was at the height, in 1970, the height of the spaghetti boom. It may have still been 69, actually, because I turned 19 and, uh, in August. So we went to Spain, and we just lucked in to being there at exactly the right moment, where Franco was making it advantageous financially to shoot in Spain. So suddenly... There were movies being made, hundreds of movies, Italian movies, German movies, British movies, American movies, Spanish. Everyone was making German. Everyone was making movies in Spain. That was the spaghetti boom. So I worked on so many movies. I mean, and I and it's too long a story and boring. Let's get let's get, forget all this and go to the uh, Blues Brothers. did you decide that you wanted to be an actor? And I always had the bug. I just didn't pursue it in school. And then when I got out of school, my older brother was actually an actor for a period of time. And he was appearing as Peter in Diary of Anne Frank on Broadway. So I went to live with him, studied speech and studied acting, and studied at a place in Colorado called the Perry Mansfield Theater. Two women, Charlotte Perry and Portia Mansfield, ran in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I acted there and met a man named Barney Brown, and he was my mentor. He was teaching uh, the Stanislavski method, and I became a very uh, much a method actor as a young person in terms of believing in it. And that's pretty, by then, my mind had been made up. How old were you when you managed to break into television? I think I was 20 or 21, one or the other. It was uh, Gertrude Berg on CBS, as I recall, called uh, Mrs. G Goes to College. And uh, Gertrude Berg was the star, and I played uh, a student at the college where she was uh, going to school. Not only are you an actor, but you also have had not just a toe in music, but you've had the whole foot. You've been really involved in the music scene. How did that happen? It happened by accident. A friend of mine 
who's still a friend of mine, I might add, named Murray McLeod. He and I went to high school together in Scottsdale, Arizona. Then when I was out in L.A., I had written a one-act play, and the actor in the play, a guy named Smokey Roberts, he said, you know, I'm working, we're writing songs together with a guy you went to high school with. And so I started hanging around with them. They brought in a, a young composer, producer named Jerry Riopel. They formed a group called The Parade, which was signed by A&M Records. They had a big hit called Sunshine Girl in 1967. And I and Jerry Riopel started working together. And we wrote songs, I'd say, up until his death two years ago, February. Part of that was, you know, writing songs. I also wrote some television movies, and uh, we started doing the score for those, Murray uh, and Jerry and I. done that on numerous occasions since then, or certainly been involved with the music. You even recorded an album. How did that come about? Um, that was the good fortune of knowing Jim Garner. And Jim Garner, he, he knew the whole time we were working, for the many years we worked together, that I had uh, an interest in a, in a very deep commitment to music. And he, he, I had written a number of songs, and he became aware of the songs I wrote. So one time Warner Brothers asked him to appear in a pilot about Maverick, and he said, why would I do that? And I said, well, we'll give you whatever you want if you put us one day's appearance. And so he said, do an album with Stuart Margola. And that's how it came about. That's a good friend indeed. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about getting the role in Kelly's Heroes and what that experience was like. Had you ever been to Yugoslavia before? Oh, actually, I had been here before, curiously enough. I did a film called... The Gamblers, it was shot in Dubrovnik for the most part. So I went, and then just as luck would have it, I met Brian Hutton, who directed Kelly's Heroes. I figured he thought I could do the part, so he cast me. So when I went back to Yugoslavia, albeit to Serbia for the first three months of the film, uh, a lot of the crew that I'd worked with that I'd met, none, they were on the film. It's good to see them again. And this is before they Tito was still alive both years, so it was still truly Yugoslavia. What was the country like at the time? Did it feel like it was stuck in history? It was used as uh, because they had all the Spain and Yugoslavia had all the World War II equipment. One of the reasons I'm sure Kelly's heroes shot there, so it was stuck back in history that much. It was you know an old socialist country. Tito was shrewd in that my first year there in Yugoslavia in 68, the year before Televivos, Russia had invaded Czechoslovakia, but the Yugoslavs were kind of hoping they'd come try and invade Yugoslavia. They were much more, reminded me a bit of Texas where I grew up. They were in a tough country, tough land, and they seem to, you know, Tito had outwitted Stalin, and that's how he was able to pull out of all the other situations. And so they thought for sure Russia might be coming. So every night the crew would meet after filming 
and figure out where the guns were and where they were to go to in the hills as protectors. So it was an interesting time. But they had all the old World War II planes, tanks. I've been back once since then, twice, twice since then. Went back for Tito's funeral, or not the funeral, but the memorial in Dubnik. Uh, I was very upset Jimmy Carter didn't attend the funeral. He was the only world leader that didn't. Went back another time to Croatia just because it's a great vacation spot on the coast. I think I read that Kelly's Heroes took at least six months to shoot. Is that true? At least. June, July, August, September, October. I'd say closer to six and a half. Clint finally said, I've had enough. He wanted to stop. And they stopped shortly thereafter. With a, a, a movie shooting so long, had you ever been on uh, a movie that sh- took so long before that or since? Not even close or since. No, I've never been on anything that long except a series. No, I, I, I have nothing to compare that to. Nothing even, certainly nothing near six months. What was your experience like? What was it working on that shoot? Varying, um, like I say, in the early part of the shoot, first three months, we filmed in Serbia we were on the Danube in an old castle called the Veridin, and had been there since uh, the Middle Ages, just about. And across from the Veridin castle was a town called Novisad, which uh, there was a bridge in between that had been blown up. And in Novisad, the beach was kind of an unspoken memorial to the Nazis had taken one of the males from the town of Novi Sad and uh, murdered them on the beach. Serbia was much more Russian than Croatia. Uh, then the last part of the film, we were in Croatia, an area right up near the Italian border called Istria. We filmed there till the end of the film. And that was closer to what I knew of Yugoslavia. It was, uh, and like I say, it was all Yugoslavia then. It wasn't, it hadn't woken up. Did you guys shoot pretty much in order? I'm sure not in exact order, but, it, but in terms of beginning of the film to the end of the film, yes. The beginning of the film all took place at bases or fights near Serbia. And at the end, where you go into the town looking for the gold, that was all in Croatia. So in that sense, yeah, the two locations were split between beginning and end. One of the things I love the most about Kelly's Heroes is the cast and the just incredibly diverse talent that's on that film. Just to have Clint Eastwood, you, Donald Sutherland, I mean, just so many different types of actors and acting. What was that like? And especially, what was it like working so close with Telly Savalas? It was great. Telly was great to work with. Uh, everybody was pretty good to work with, I'd have to say. Brian, the director, kept a good uh, company. He ran it like a kind of a general. Yeah, and, and you had to on a film like that. It was just huge. We had an Italian wardrobe, German special effects, Mexican film crew, Irish stuntmen and caterer, English stuntmen and grips. So it was a totally international crew, uh, 
and everybody kind of had to speak some English, and they did. Then the cast, I knew a lot of them, and a lot of them who later became stars, uh, weren't then at the time. Clint sure was. Sutherland was coming up. He had already appeared in another big war movie. Kelly was famous. He'd been in a number of movies, but Carol O'Connor and the other people really were character actresses from television or both of them, but none of them had become real stories the way they had been. Uh, Gavin McLeod from Love Boat and Mary Tyler Moore and uh, John Nichols. He, you know, he had achieved stardom, and uh, I don't know that it grew anymore because of that, but he was as funny as you can imagine. Plus, it's interesting, when we first started shooting, we all lived at the Veridin Palace on the Danube, which was, was, like I say, an old medieval castle. And we had the food was served every evening in the dining room. He kind of ran the commentary. He had, he seemed like he, he was with his wife at the time, and he would comment as people entered the dining room. Uh, allowed making comments on giving Kelly most of the uh, attention he would be uh, attacking Kelly. Uh, occasionally, he didn't mess with Clint too much because Clint was, uh, you couldn't tell whether he appreciated it or not. And Sutherland was as crazy as the character he plays. It's interesting, Don got, Don Sutherland got very, very sick before filming started and they put him in a hospital in Belgrade and he got a little worse and it really got uh, a touch and go and I know there was some discussion about replacing him he was ill but he obviously uh, got better and that never came about but I think he was made aware of that and that it made him only crazier with how he did things it was pretty stunning. I know the one of the producers, there was a gambling in uh, Serbia and on the coast, and we were very close, like I say, to the Italian border. One of the producers was broke all the time, having gambled his money away, and he was borrowing money from the caterer to gamble, and uh, it went on like that. There were enough people that they were different groups, but like I remember on the the, the, the moonwalk, uh, the landing on the moon, uh, we were still at the Veridin Hotel in Serbia, and uh, there, was, there was an all-night poker game. I know Sutherland was there. Clinton, what well, didn't stay very long ever. The Kelly, and I mean, it was a damn serious game of poker. And then during the night, as the night went on, at like 10.30, 11, 11.30, you'd see some of the staff at the hotel or waiters or wandering into the room when we were playing poker in their robes and things to turn on the TV set to watch the moon landing. And it seems like everybody but the Americans was very interested in what was going on. It's only the Americans that were locked in their poker game, you know. There was a a hearts tournament, you know, the card game hearts, 
that went on for months, and uh, I won. I got a little, uh, it was like a cup, uh, one of the water cups you get when you go to go with your canteen, and taped on it was the winner of the uh, arts tournament, um, but I was very happy to win that. It was, that's all, just a lot of gambling and uh, mainly cards. And, and people would go to casinos if we got near one, you know. And there was a lot more opportunity in Croatia. Because, like, again, you run to the border and gamble in Italy. I take it it wasn't a problem to get back and forth across the border at that time. Not at all. Uh, I had, it was a very funny, for me funny anyway, story I had co-written a song that was called Day After Day, More People Come to L.A. It was a calypso, of all things. And it was uh, written, it had, been a, it had been a record in the Caribbean by a group called Shango. And the writer, a guy named Tommy Reynolds, who was a steel drum player, but he and I and Jerry Riopel rewrote it like a Said day after day, more people come to L.A. Shh, don't tell anybody. The whole place slipping away, and it was about whatever the rains and um, you know. And sure enough, it got released at the beginning of an eleven-day rain, and it became the number one song in L.A. This is back in early '69. I think it went to twentieth in the country. At any rate, no, it must have been. Yeah, I was 69, right. And then I went to uh, Yugoslavia to do uh, Kelly's in June. And uh, sometime in the latter part of July, I got a call saying, Chevrolet wants to use your song as an ad. And day after day, more people buy Chevrolet or whatever. So we each got a certain amount of money, and I bought a BMW in, uh, yeah, in Trieste. So I had, it was a wonderful car, and I drove it, brought it back across the ocean, and drove it from New York to L.A. And and actually, Sutherland and uh, his buddy Sandy, I can't remember, I can't remember his last name. Sutherland brought back a Ferrari, and they drove from New York to L.A. Only they did it, and I I'm going to say something like 29 hours of straight driving through Luzerne. Some of the things I remember. And then, you know, the daily, just the filming of, of Kelly's and some of the scenes were, you know, there was lots of explosions throughout the film, but I was involved mainly at the beginning with the explosions. And uh, it was interesting. And I got, there was one scene where we're all having lunch on a hilltop and we got strafed by some whatever they were, German planes, they came overhead. So that's done by, you know, they they bring the, uh, down to the ground, they have little fireworks kind of things that they bring on. But in fact, that day, somebody said early on, where's all the, uh, none of the German or English stuntmen were anywhere to be seen. And we come to find out that the German special effects man named Boom Boom Schumacher who's using copper in his uh, explosion loads, meaning pieces of copper were sailing through the air 
and one of them went through my boot, through my leg, and out the other side, right above the ankle. And I leaped up, they fixed it there. Fortunately, it went all the way through and out. But, I mean, that could have been my eye or brain just as easily, you know. But that was, you know, everybody brought back some wound from that war, you know. Kelly got bayoneted in the middle of the arm. Crazy stuff happened. You mentioned Gavin McLeod. I know you would go on to direct him quite a few times. You directed an episode of Mary Tyler Moore and quite a few uh, Love Boat episodes. I knew him before the movie, too. So, well, yeah, we'd gone back. We were just kind of actors in L.A. He was partnered up with a guy named Dick Davalos. And Dick had been quite a famous actor. And in that, he played James Dean's brother in East of Eden, the good brother, as it were. They were each appropriately insane, which fit their parts quite well. And Gavin did, you know, did a whole 180 and became a very respectable citizen of Hollywood. So I knew him afterwards as well. My roommate at the Veriden, you know, we each had, I thought many of us had one roommate. Mine was Harry Dean Stanton at the Veriden at the castle on the Danube. I've got some old, used to have some, I don't even know where they are now, photographs of Harry sitting in the window, strumming guitar, playing, singing songs. Yeah, did you guys sing together? I wasn't exhibiting any uh, musical interest at the time. What we did do together, he arrived, I had, like I say, I'd been in Yugoslavia before, and I knew the thing, and he came into the uh, Belgrade airport, and uh, he brought his suitcases out to the car, and one of the suitcases was filled with, there wasn't anything else in it but marijuana. And I said, man, they, they bury you. Underground, no one will ever hear from you again if they find this stuff. And he said, "Well, let's let's make sure they don't find it." And I said, "Yeah, we we better room together." He's so altruistic. Yeah. One of the other people I spoke to about this film was uh, John Landis. Do you remember him being on set? Sure, Johnny Milk was his nickname because the director Brian Hutton had ulcers or something similar to ulcers. And he needed milk a lot or wanted it a lot. He said, milk, Johnny, Johnny milk. And that was part of John's job is to keep a glass of milk nearby Brian. He learned a lot about film as well as he was a good friend of uh, one of the production. I'm trying to remember his name. I, I can't remember his name, but he was involved in the production of Man that He'd been around a lot of international films. Moorshot, maybe, or something like that. I can't, I just can't remember. Did the movie do anything for you? Was it a stepping stone to the next bigger role? No, I mean, I think uh, some people may have been, you know, the fact that I was gotten the part may have helped my agent at the time. But in fact, the film came out and really didn't go anywhere. It just died. It was up against what came out at exactly the same time was uh, MASH. And MASH took off. Remember, it was 1970, 69, 70. And MASH took off, and Kelly's Heroes, nothing really happened with it. 
And then as the years went by, it slowly became this kind of cult film, you know, like weird kind of everybody liked it, so, you know, and, but, but it was a weird life. But in its initial release, they didn't do hardly much at all because MASH was so anti-Kelly's heroes in terms of it was in Vietnam. It was, it was much more irreverent and not really, but in its own, in its portrayal, it was the big hit. It feels like there's some anti-war stuff in Kelly's Heroes, but not enough, if that makes sense. I don't remember anybody describing it as such. It was certainly, it was just a, a, war, a World War II film, of which there were many at the time, actually. And there was no mention of anti-war at all. I mean, it was just, it was about scamming, but... <laughs> Not a, not so much against the war. I wanted to know how you got involved in directing because it was just a few a few years after that that you started directing, especially um, like I said, Mary Tyler Moore, Love American Style. You have done so many things over the years, and that was yet another facet of your career. There's a certain point you're in LA that you you hang around films and you think, gee, I'd like to try my hand at that. And I was always a believer for myself anyway. Maybe I made the wrong choice, but I'd do anything they'd let me do. You know, so somebody said, you want to direct that film? I'd say, yeah. Do you want to do the music for that film? Yeah, sure. I'd like to write this. And unless I really didn't know anything, no, I wouldn't. I would never pretend to be a cameraman or a makeup person or those things that I could do. I had, you know, I had directed plays before, albeit great writers, you know, but I had directed plays. And so it's, you know, it's a matter of interpreting the material and working with the actors. And, uh, and I had written before, I think. Yeah, I had written actually a war movie in 68 that went on the air in 69 called the Ballad of Andy Crocker, which was the first Vietnam film that was ever made for American TV. Starred Lee Majors and uh, a kid that comes back from Vietnam and kind of the world's changed on him. And that did a lot, you know, that be, everybody became aware of that more than anything else. So I think it was not unnatural because I then started doing Rockford Files and between that and Love American style, uh, and I knew the guys were Mary Tyler Moore pretty well. You brought up the Rockford Files, and I have to say that's the first time that I saw you because I kind of grew up on the Rockford Files. And how was it playing Angel? You were such a great character. I'd had that character without knowing that I had that character in my uh, bullet chamber and and. So well, we had done a series, we being Jim Garner and myself, uh, he had a series before Rockford, the year before Jim and uh, Margot Kidder. Frank Pearson was the exec producer, along with Nita Rosenberg. But Frank was one of the great Hollywood writers. And so we had done this Western, and, and I played his sidekick that was like a guy you couldn't, always trust 
and I called him a desert rat. I remember at the time, which was sounds worse than it means because back in the day, I had gone to school for a couple of years at different times in Mesa, Arizona, and the school bus pick us up out in the desert, and we'd be riding with the sons and daughters of some of the desert rats, meaning they were just people that lived in the desert who wasn't uh, ascribing any qualities to them. But, but anyway, that's who he was. So when Rockford came up, they sent me the script written by Steve Cannon. And so it's an urban rat rather than a desert. And, and it just came to me. I could do Angel all day long, you know. I, I just, there was a rhythm to Angel. And I, I felt like I could walk that way and talk that way and not really have to work on many aspects of What's the character? What's he like? You know, I loved him. Uh, I think probably really was crazy about the way he fit into Rockford's uh, life and psyche. The two guys have been in prison together. So by that time, I had begun to direct. And Jim and Nita Rosenberg and Steve Cannell, who produced uh, Rockford, uh, knew that I was trying to direct a little, and and I did, did direct a couple of Rockwoods. You know, I only did like five a year of the shows, uh, and they were doing 22, 20 to 22 shows a year in those days. So I was in a little, uh, a fifth of them, maybe, a uh, fourth of them, not quite. And I think in some ways, there was a good quality to that in as much as you didn't get tired of Angel too quick. I don't know if every week, if maybe he'd have burned out or something, but it turned out well, and I I felt good. I felt good about Angel. I saw you just a few years ago in a film called The Discoverers. I really enjoyed that film, and especially your role in it. Oh, well, thank you, Asia. Wonderful young man that wrote it and directed it. Justin, terrific guy. Uh, I knew uh, Griffin Dunn from long ago, so we were pretty good friends, and uh, that was nice. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, What the Night Can Do? What the Night Can Do was a script that I wrote, and my uh, youngest stepson directed, Christopher Martini. He's a filmmaker out of New York, and then director, editor, writer. And it was shot in West Virginia in about 12 days. May have been, and they may have ended up being 14 days with the pickups and everything. It was shot down and dirty. The young lady in it was uh, at 12 years old at the time was a young actress from Canada, and she's now a grown young lady. And doing well, I'm, I'm told. She had a series on, I think it was Netflix. Is that Mercedes Mason? No, Mercedes is a, she's in that, uh, uh, the one about the, uh, the zombies, but the spinoff, the spinoff from the original. Fear of the Walking Dead. Yeah. Mercedes is in that. No, uh, this, a young lady's name is Peyton. She's terrific. 
Well, all the actors were. My oldest boy, Max Margini, he was married to, uh, in the film, to Mercedes. He played the, he played, uh, the girl's father. So it was pretty much a family kind of film to some degree. It was a fun. It was, it was, you know, when you're making film that fast and don't have much time, if any time, it's a, it's a lot of pressure. It's, it's hard work, <laughs> especially for the director, you know, you have to move on, you know, at a certain point. And so there's a lot of scenes that I'm sure he would have loved to have shot some more, been able to do more takes, rehearsals, whatever. But anyway, it was a good experience. I just caught you in one that I had wanted to see for years, but was unable to find and finally just bought it on DVD. The Big Bus. What a wonderfully odd picture that is. Crazy, crazy picture. Wonderfully written by two good friends of mine, one especially good friend of mine named Fred Freeman and Larry Cohen. They were very good. Some of the the best in, in terms of that type of material, truly offbeat material, they were the best. Julia Phillips produced it. It was crazy. Nutty crazy. I remember uh, Jose Ferrar, he was up in that iron lung one day. It was Christmas Eve day, I think. And he said, you, you live out west on sunset. And I said, yeah. He said, would you take this package by this house? So I said, sure. So he gave me this package. And I drove and I'm going up and then, uh, this must be is a beautiful area, you know. Sure enough, a pretty big, big size mansion. I ring the doorbell and it's Rosemary Clooney. They had been married. And now I put it together and it was like a belated, or not belated, but it was a Christmas gift delivered by a stranger, you know, to her. I'll never forget. That was so weird. But he he was fun to work with. And uh, Sally Kellerman and Richard Mulligan were two of my close friends, close, close friends. And Sally, I thought, was superb in that film, as was Stockard Channing. Great cast and the concept worked in that era's time because there were those films about the building with the atom bomb in the middle of it. You know, here's this bus, and uh, it was it was very funny. I was tickled to be in it. I'm surprised that it came out so many years before Airplane. It was a little more tongue in cheek, and I think it might have been just a little bit too smart for itself. You know, when you consider the extent of the success of Airplane, Big Bus should have been in that area anyway. And I, it was it was received well, but not on that level, you know. And never really has been. It's kind of an afterthought for a lot of people. Mr. Margolin, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a pleasure talking with you. I'm glad. I'll thank you for calling and asking and being patient about it.
I grew up with you in my living room every week. If it wasn't the Mary Tyler Moore show, it was the Love Boat. That, but that was really a gift, I have to tell you, because just after Mary ended, Patty and I talked about it. I said, you know, because whenever there was a hiatus, we, were, we had a nightclub act and we were doing a play someplace. We were, it was wonderful. That fulfillment was terrific. People want to see you when they see you on television. They want to see you on person. So it was great. And so when it ended, I said, why don't we put our act together again and just concentrate on that? That's enough television. She said, I think that's a good idea. There were two different offers after the Murray Tyler Moore show. One was there was an hour show about the depression that took place in Pittsburgh. I was going to be the father. And there wasn't a snicker. There was nothing to laugh at. It was like, you see that show, you commit Harry Carey, you're so depressed. I said, no, thanks. I don't think I want to do that. Then they sent another pilot with Jeff Bridges, who I had worked with before, and I knew his whole family. I used to do plays with his brother, Bo. And I gave Jeff his first job years ago. I had written and directed a play at Theater West, you know, where Carol was too, and he was doing the same thing. And so I had, I had, I wrote a play and I had people planted in the audience. And so this one girl from the theater group, I said, I, w- I would love to have you do that. She said, well, I would love to do it. He said, I have a boyfriend named Jeff Bridges. I said, oh, I've heard of him. And she said, could he come and be one of the audience too and participate and throw the paper? Pl-? I said, sure he can. So, <laughs> That's how I met Jeff, and then I met the mother. And I, oh, I knew that whole family so well. I sound like an old guy repeating his life. I'm sorry. Anyway, uh, that was another thing. But that was a cat. That was like Murray Slaughter in a cowboy suit. I said, I don't think I want to do that. And finally, I have my agent calls. I'm not sure. Patty and I get in because I'm going to put our act together again. The agent called says, I got an offer from Aaron Spelling. It's very good. I said, oh, yeah, what's the show? It's called The Love Boat. I said, oh, that's not so familiar. I said, uh, have you read it? He says, yeah. I said, what do you think about it? He thinks I, he says, I think it sucks. He says, you want to read it? I said, sure, I want to read it. He says, I'll send it to you. I said, okay, but do it fast because I'm going down. We had a little place in Palm Springs for Mary Tyler Moore days. I said, I'm going down there for the weekend. I could read it. So he got it to me, and we got it, and Patty read The Love Boat first. And she said, oh, Gavin, I just read this show, and it's, and you're going to be the captain. Wow. And I said, well, I better read this thing. And, well, it was like Love Love American style. I did the last one of those before that was canceled. And then, but there was a story there about an old Jewish guy, eventually Phil Silvers played it, who feels like he's going to die, but there's no more room in the cemetery in Astoria. And so he says, I want to go on this ship. I can die on this ship and they can throw me overboard. So that'll be that. So that was his plan. So he gets on this ship and he meets this girl who was Audra Lindley, who was Jimmy Whitmore's wife in real life. They fall for each other. And it's a beautiful love story. And then you have the other funny stuff going on. But this is this story that got me. And so before, and so they're making plans. And before they get back, she goes over to his room to, to see him, to get him. And he's passed away. Well, that tugged at my heart a bit. I said, if I can do 
a, a really broad comedy, a subtle comedy, and this kind of a thing. So Aaron Spelling had a meeting. He says, I promise you we will always have one of these serious stories in this. We will always, because I thought I need to have happy endings. He says, happy endings. And that's what they tried to do with the love boat. And he said, we'll try to get the biggest stars available. Well, that's what they did. The critics hated us. Oh, they thought it was mindless television. I'll never forget when we did one of my favorite shows was The Love Boat Follies with, if you're uh, Ethel Merman, Carol Channing, Della Reese, uh, Ann Miller, Cab Calloway, and Van Johnson. You know, in actors, heaven, come on with these people. And so the reviewer hated it and then said when McLeod finished his number, he said they should have torpedoed the ship. Well, I thought that was the funniest line at all because when, when we got a star on Hollywood Boulevard about three years ago, I said, I'll never forget that one. I'm so glad they didn't torpedo the ship. It was a show for the people, and I think that's what a lot of television, they want to reach, reach as many as they can. They get more money when they get a bigger audience, and, and they'll pay more money for the advertising. And so I was very able to do that. And uh, I was very grateful for that show because we were all over the world. It was just really something special. I always keep thinking they called it mindless television. So that must be what the populace is. But I think people want to see things that help them escape and People want to see people better off than they are, and people the people cruised vicariously with a lot of these characters, and as a result, cruise lines just exploded. When we started, that princess had two little ships, and until recently, we just got rid of that one of them. They got because they got a great big one, and they just made the biggest enchanted princess. But that won't be coming out. None of them are coming out for a while, but they still have to keep them going so they don't rot. And nobody's going, and they don't feel safe. But I think once it starts in again, they've been working on it. The cruise industry has lost billions and billions and billions of dollars. It's nice to have had all that, but it's also nice to have had Brian Hutton in my life because he he was very, very special. And even at that time, he had his ulcer because he was drinking his milk and his stuff in the daytime. I guess the milk was supposed to be helping him. I don't know. I am so curious about how you got the role, and and I want to kind of dive into your experience being over there in Yugoslavia. But first, please tell me um, how you got the role. My first Broadway play was A Hat Full of Rain. I was the first replacement. I was the only one in it that wasn't in the actor's studio. So I was in it for months in New York, and McQueen came in. That was his first Broadway, second Broadway thing. Ben Gazzara had created it. Then he went away to do a movie from the play called And There's a Man, which became a movie called The Strange One with all the actor studio guys, and Peter Mark Richmond was in it also. But anyway, so Steve took over because Shelley Winters was leaving the play Vivian Blaine was coming in, and so they needed someone who kind of fit with Vivian Blaine, and, and Steve belonged to the studio, and uh, anyway, I read with a lot of actors, George Pappard and all of them, but Steve got it, and Steve was doing it, and you know what happened to Steve McQueen as a result. Wow, that was the beginning. I'm talking like this, and it sounds like I'm an old person, and I guess I am. So I was with that for years, and I was on the road with it, played California, 
Hollywood, got great reviews, got an offer for a movie, but I wouldn't leave the play. And I went back to New York and I told my wife, I said, I think I got some action on the West Coast. We knew one person, they called the agent out there. And before you know it, I was doing a hat full of rain on the West Coast. They were just about to open and they didn't like the guy that was playing mother. Well, I had understudied that and I knew it upside down. So I went down and I saw them. They gave me a reading and they said, you want to open Tuesday? I said, sure. The bottom line was the leading character in that play was played by Brian Hutton. And that was the first time I met him. Jocelyn Brando was his wife, had wonderful actors, Robert Blake, and a lot, a lot of people. Anyway, we did all that. That was in 1957. In 1960, Brian calls me and said, Gavin, I, I, ha I have done Operation Petticoat and a lot of movies in that interim. And he says, uh, I've got this play I want you and Robert Blake to do. I said, what's it called? He says, The Connection. The connection, I said, that's Jack Gelber's play they're doing at the American Theater back in New York, the Living Theater. He said, yeah. I said, Brian, I don't want to do it. I, all I read about it, it's, an, it's all improvisation. I don't want to do a whole evening of improvisation. He says, no, no, there's a script. Let me bring it to you. So he brought me the script. I read it, and wow, it blew me away. And so we proceeded with that. I was my first boy who was just about to be born. He was just born, actually. So we opened the play. And all of a sudden, Brian, who was an actor before this, becomes a very desirable director. James Wong Howe, this great photographer, he came four times. Blake Edwards came. I had done things with him. He came with uh, Peter Gunn and his wife, Hank Mancini. Everybody would come. It was the show to see in town. So Brian was really getting recognized as a director for the first time. Al Ruddy was producing for the first. He was selling shoes until this play and he produced the play and as you know he his first thing was the uh, the godfather the movie for the godfather he produced and he's still around brian went from there and he he did he did another series at universal and before you knew it i got a call and brian said this is a long story on how i got the part he said gavin i got a great part for you with this movie with clint eastwood I said, oh, okay, let me see it. And so he sent me the script, and I said, oh, yeah, when do we go? And that's how that happened is because I knew Brian. We had worked together as actors, and uh, I had, I, we had worked together as a director-actor, and it was I just loved that guy. He was wonderful. It was one of my favorite people of all time. That's how I got the part. He immediately said, you'd be great for Moriarty. Oh, he just sent it to me. He says, I want you to play this. Yeah, because he knows the kind of stuff I did. I would always take a lot of risks playing characters in the early days. You know, that's what the character Leech was in the play, The Connection. I mean, a guy had a boil on his neck. He was just, I would think you might call him a bisexual guy. He was anti-sex. He was just, you didn't, you could, you could, could. The reviews were, the, the people, this is the first time a person used the F word in a play. And Robert Blake, we each had big monologues. I opened with a 40-minute monologue. Then each actor had a, had their own monologue. And the second actor, Robert, had his monologue. And every once in a while, he would get upset and he would use the F word. 
Well, people would hurt and start screaming and things like that. This was this was 1960. They had cops come, and the police would be there every night waiting for. If he said the f word, if they were there, they were going to close us down. So it got a lot of notoriety in those days because this is it was groundbreaking as a result. And I got so much work as I worked for Paul Henry so many times when he was directing. As a result of that particular play, to this day. People, I went to do a play. I did a lot of plays for John Houseman at UCLA. That's where I met uh, Carol O'Connor. Uh, there was publicity lady for a play. I forget which one it was. The Evening of the Absurd, I think, Ian Esco, et cetera. And uh, she said, publicity lady, he says, I met her. She says, I don't want to get close to you. I said, why not? She says, I saw you in the connection. Oh, I can't stand you. I said, oh, I'm just an actor. Well, anyway, heaven's sakes, it's not me. But anyway, it was that kind of a thing. And, and Brian was getting credit for all that because he loved actors who risked. And I loved to risk playing characters. That was it. And that's why he just called me. He knew I was going to do something with Moriarty. And I and I, I, I asked him, well, who's going to play uh, Oddball? Yeah, who's going to play? He said, Donald Sutherland. I said, oh, wow, this will be something else. Had you worked in Yugoslavia or Europe before that? No, no, no. I had I had done the Sand Pebbles before that uh, with Steve McQueen. In uh, we were in uh, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and back at the studio, and that's where I met Shep Sanders, who was also part of Oddball's crew. And Shep lived down here where I live in the uh, Coachella Valley, down here in the Palm Springs area. He left us about three years ago. I went to his funeral. It was a great guy. He played Turk. How was it working in Yugoslavia under Tito? It was challenging and wonderful and exciting. All all these guys and very few women. My wife came over for a short time, I remember. Tom Troop was there, one of the, one of the best actors of all time. And his wife is Carol Cook. And she was there a lot for the whole time. And she was, uh, I don't know if you know her, but she was Lucille Ball's protege. And she was the first one to do Hello, Dolly. Outside of Carol Channing, she did it in Australia for about six or seven years. When Tommy Troop, he was with Telly's group, and then I was with Oddball's group. We didn't work at the same time frequently, and we had we weren't working. And so, when he was working and I wasn't, his he and I, his wife and I would walk into town. I hang out with her because she was a showgirl, and we walked into town, and they all thought she was Jaja Gabor. And so she played it up. She's a funny, funny lady. And she played it up. So I love being with Carol. And I met some wonderful people. So anyway, the first location was a Novi Sad. And we had rooms and a great big, I mean, when I went over there, I said, oh, I'm going to have fun with the guys going over. Well, apparently, I went over by myself. I flew over. Somebody met me and brought me up to this big old frightening looking kind of hotel in Novi Sad, way up there. And Len Lesser was there and Len Lesser and I were in the same theater group and he was playing a character. And so he and I shared the same mini suite together as long as that he didn't stay very long. He had just that location of doing, he was great. And that's where I met the guys in the show who were still there, who were there before me. Yeah, we became fast friends, and we all in, in the same boat, not boat, the same tank, so so to speak. And the location was interesting. I had never experienced anything like that, though I had been in the Orient, you know, and 
And then years later, when I did the Love Boat, we were all over the world. But this was this place. It was new and different, and and it was so beautiful. One of the scary things, well, not scary, but one of the things that I thought was very emotionally disturbing is that place we stayed in is where Hitler took it over during the Second World War. I remember there was a big wall with all flowers planted in front of the wall. And I thought, oh, isn't that beautiful? Look at those flowers. Look how you... And somebody said, you know why they're there? I said, no. And he said, because they represent all the people that have been killed against that wall. Hitler just lined them up and shot them down. I said, oh, my God. And then we were up high. And he said, and then they took him to the other side and pushed them over. And they went into the Blue Danube, which was black. So it had that that, that kind of memories that were very negative and uh, disturbing, tell you the truth. But Marshal Tito was alive when we were there shooting. And we had he had all those Second World tanks and things that we could use. And we had to get his approval for many, many different things. I remember one incident when we were in the second location. We were at a resort and we were in into one of those little towns there shooting. And it was a big scene in the movie with the tanks. And we all entered this one town and you see the townspeople waving and so forth. And one of those people was a little old man and he waved and waved and it was over. Brian came running up to me. He said, my God, he said, the man died. I said, what? He said, he got scared, had a heart attack and died. I said, oh, my God, what are you going to do? He said, this is what we're going to have to do. We're going to have to bury him. His wife came running to us and said, look, please, please do me a favor. Bury him yourself. Build the coffin, put him in, and just don't tell anybody. Because if the state finds out that he died, they'll take my house away from me. And so that was a, a kind of a memory I have of, of that entrance in that big, when those, that, when the tanks came in and all the people and all that. Uh, that was the second location. I can't remember the name of it, and I should because we spent most of the time shooting there. What I forgot to tell you, which was kind of fun, is that I've heard that the shoot went on for like six months. How long were you over there? Oh, it seemed like a long time. <laughs> It was a lot. It was months and months and months. It was a very interesting location because it was very different than the location with Steve and Robert Wise and and the Sand Pebbles. But that was a that was the Orient, and it was a very much more controlled atmosphere. Our first assistant on this big picture was John Chule, because he was Yugoslavian. And John Shuley was the first assistant on the Dick Van Dyke show years before. And so we finally come home from doing Kelly's Heroes. I start rehearsing. I'm doing Carousel, playing Jigger and Carousel. And I get a call from my agent. The bottom line is the Mary Tyler Moore show. And it turns out the first assistant on the Mary Tyler Moore show is John Shuley. I was with him in Yugoslavia for all those months, and he's the nicest guy. He's passed now. They finally gave him one of our Mary Tyler Moore shows to direct, and it was one of the best shows I think we ever did. It was a show called Not a Christmas Show, and it was very, very funny, and John did a great job. But I met him first on Dick Van Dyke, and then now in Kelly's Heroes. He had a big job, second units and everything else. And uh, he did a great job. And so that's how it rekindled us when we, we worked together on that. And then we did have, I don't know if anybody told you about the, the special effects man, 
Brian used to tell me, he said, man, he loves to blow things up. And he, he loved, he was blowing anything up. And those poor Yugoslavian actors, well, they were extras. They would blow them up in one scene, and then two hours later, they'd be dressed and walking, marching, and so forth. You know, it was just a very interesting kind of location. Tom Troop was wonderful. He got killed. The Nazis killed him in the minefield. And Dick Davalos, he was, if I remember him, he played James Dean's brother in the East of Eden. And, and he had a lot of Broadway stuff. But Davalos, uh, he was the guy in the tower near the end. Uh, he was one. And Jerry O'Laughlin, my friend from, he and I had done a Hawaii Five-0 together. And now he comes over there to shoot this character. And he was so wonderful. And I was shocked when they released the movie because he wasn't in it. He was replaced by Kelly's brother, George. I don't know what happened there. Nobody ever told me. I didn't ask. I was just very disappointed. Harry Dean Stanton was great. He had his guitar and a guy named playing cowboy with him. And Carol O'Connor was just a bright force in that movie. And, uh, Carol and I had been friends. We had done plays for John Houseman at UCLA together. We belonged to Theater West. We used to write plays at the same time. And I knew Nancy well and his little boy, Hugh. Anyway, so Carol. But then there was Don Rickles. Barbara was with him. And he said, you know, he. I thought he was so wonderful in that movie. Telly had his whole group of guys around him for support. It was amazing to see. I had never seen anything quite like that before. It was like a, like he was a king and he had wonderful actors surrounding him that would just do his bidding and all. And George was one. And I love George. That's what I remember. Dick Balduzzi was in that too. I met Dick on that shot and I got a chance to, I got him on the Mary Tyler Moore show a couple of years later. We did a funny thing happen on the way to the forum together. So I don't know if he's with us now. I lose track of these people. This was a long time ago. I think he just passed last year. He did, huh? He was very funny. He got very funny when I was doing The Love Boat. And I used to see him, go to see his apartment and all this stuff. And we did have that one show together. And after we did The Love Boat, uh, I was I was shooting it. And he came to see me in my trailer. He said, look, I hear there's a part of an Italian chef coming up. I said, yeah, they want Al Molinaro. He said, well, I want to play that. I, I said, Dick, I said, they just want names here. That, that's to what they do. They they go for names. And Al is so well known. And he said, look, I want you to get me that part. And he slammed out of the door and he left my trailer. And I haven't seen him since. That was so sad to me because we used to hang out. So his his daughter was very talented. I don't know what's happened there. So Clint is still here. I'm still here. Sutherland is still here. He's, I see him doing things all the time. Yeah, what was he like to work with? Oh, he was fabulous. Because he's nothing like Oddball. He's fabulous. As a matter of fact, you know what? After he first met me, he had a Cockney guy. I can't remember his name, who was his assistant. He said, hey, let, let's get out of town. I said, well, where are we going to go? We're in Yugoslavia. He said, we can take a boat across and we'll go to Italy and we'll have dinner there and come back. And he said, it'll break this whole thing up. I said, well, do we need permission? And he said, just come with me. And so we got on, we got on this boat 
and it just skimmed along. It was other people on the boat, too. It was one of those ferry kind of boats, only smaller, skimmed along, and we got out, and when I went to this Italian restaurant, yeah, he was treating me, so it was nice. I think he didn't want to get to know me a little bit. And I remember it was the first time in my life I ever saw a man peel an orange and, and not lose any of And the whole orange, he, he, the Italian guy was just peeling it in front of us when we were eating. But I got a chance to know him a little bit. He was wonderful to work with, let's face it, you know. And he was so good as the oddball. Some of the critics didn't like his, his whole group. He said it was very unreal and so forth. But it made a good movie. You mentioned Don Rickles, and I'm just curious, was he always on? Was he always Don Rickles? No, no, no. He only became Don Rickles. If, when he and I were just talking by ourselves, he was as real as they come. He just had that, if another person entered the room, he was on. He's not the only one. Uncle Milty was like that, too. A lot of comics were like that. There's something happens to them. It's just uh, they want to. Don was absolutely wonderful to talk to. He talked about his drinking. I was drinking quite a bit on that set. I haven't had a drink in 40-something, almost 50 years since the Mary Tyler Moore show. But I was drinking on that location. What are you going to do? I mean, half the people were on drugs, you know. And I had never done that. Shep once told me how to do something, and I tried. said, I didn't, well, it didn't make me sleep. I don't need that. Clint was there with his first wife. And the two kids, yeah, and it was small because it was way back then. And look, look what's happened to him. And wow, he's become this big, wonderful film director. It was a fun location and the food was great. It was a whole different system. You know, we even found out that uh, they had certain like uh, females assigned to different hotels that would work the hotels for the visitors. So they had a lot of that going on. But the natives, the people themselves, were just really nice people. Really, really nice people. A lot of Catholics, yes. Brian Hutton was so great. I'm so glad. He also asked me to do another one, which I couldn't. I could. I was shooting The Love Boat. Uh, Tom Selleck did another one. Another big movie for MGM. And I couldn't do it because I, I said, I can't get out of this series. I mean, I'd love to be with you, but I, I'm, I'm committed. And uh, Jack Weston did it. But I love Brian Hutton. I just loved him. And, you know, he was, I just, he never finished high school. You know, he was from Brooklyn. Just what you can do if, if you have a strong will and a great wife, Vicky was wonderful. But it was a good group, a great group of actors. You know, Harry Dean, I know, he he died last year or the year before. Down here, we don't get the, the Hollywood news. You know, it's sad because uh, people have passed away. The only time I get the Hollywood Reporter, and the first thing I look up is uh, births and deaths. I talked with Stuart Margolin um, over the weekend, and then I spoke with uh, John Landis uh, a couple weeks ago. Oh, yeah, he became a big director. Oh, I thought he was a pain in the ass on our show. Oh, he's just an aggressive pain in the ass. I thought he was a young kid just out of college, thought he knew everything. I hate to be so realistic. And then he was directing the show that Vic Morrow died on. Right, yeah, the Twilight Zone movie. Oh, that's terrible, but I'm so happy that he's been successful. Look, 
you know, you ever run into a college kid who hasn't done very much, but has all the answers, and that's what he was kind of like. I don't mean to say negative things about anybody, but I, he just, uh, it's just, I'm very happy he's successful. That's very nice. Yeah, Stuart was telling me that uh, they he called him Johnny Milk because he would go and get uh, Brian Hutton's milk to get him his that milk. Answer. Get him his milk. Stuart was great in this. Stuart's great in everything he does. I've worked with Stuart a lot in my career. He was a wonderful actor, a wonderful director. He was he was terrific. I've seen him play a lot of diverse characters. Kelly's Heroes. People love that show. I mean, I made it so long ago, and just to think, I mean, just yesterday there were five photographs of that show, five different people sending pictures. There's some good pictures of Moriarty with a. They send all kinds of things. This one, one was with Donald and Shep and I, and a lot by myself. And but people are picking up on these things that they haven't seen before. But I want to say it was a wonderful location. It was a, it was a great, a great experience uh, to live out of this country and see what the other, some of the other, the other world is like. I'm glad I did it when I was young because I couldn't handle it today. <laughs> Mr. McLeod, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. Well, Mike, I've enjoyed this very much. I got off direction a few times, but that's human nature, I guess. We are back, and we are talking about Kelly's Heroes. And I was reading the um, Landis makes mention of uh, uh, what is it called, like Retro Cinema Magazine. I was reading about that, and one of the authors was like, "Oh yeah, this is kind of like Three Kings." And I was like, "Oh yeah, I can barely remember Three Kings, but I guess it is like a heist movie and a war movie combined." And I was trying to think of other heist war movies, and it sounds like they're out there, but. Just nothing really was like screaming at me like, yes, of course, we, we're going to use the spoils of war and do a heist while we're in the middle of this. Operation Petticoat, I wouldn't say it's a heist movie, but it's sort of similarly a movie about these naval officers during World War II who are similarly kind of, I don't, I think they're more inept Certainly in Operation Petticoat, but they're similarly unfocused. They don't really know why they're there or what they're doing. And they don't exactly steal their submarine, but they kind of do. Like, they paint it pink, and they basically live to party, th mostly thanks to Tony Curtis's character. It's not a heist movie exactly, but it is pretty similar, where they become heroes totally in an accidental way. That involves a lot of women's lingerie. I mean, Where Eagles Dare does kind of feel like a heist movie, even though it's not. It's been so long since I've seen that one. I know that I've seen it. And then it was one of those where I was going through like a Clint Eastwood period. And so I was like, okay, is that the one where they climb the mountain? No, that's the Iger Sanction. So it's like, I always mix up some of those movies from around that period. Yeah, it's Clint Eastwood and Richard Burton and... There is like a, 
a mountain chateau storming sequence. So it, it, the way that that like really suspenseful scene is set up, it feels like a heist. Like it, it goes through that kind of heist montage sequence that so many of those movies have. Yeah, I was reminded of James Bond movies a little bit with that one too, like the espionage element yes. of it, as much as any kind of war movie kind of element. And I know you mentioned MASH earlier. I didn't realize that this came out because of some of the delays and because of how long it took them to shoot it, that this ended up coming out right around the same time as MASH, which is interesting that there are the parallels of kind of having this the war movie standing in, you know, this like you said, MASH is Korean War, but it's really seems very much like it's the Vietnam War, and then having this is World War II, but it feels like the Vietnam War, and then having Donald Sutherland. So Sutherland's competing against himself in the box office, which I guess either way he wins. No offense to Brian Hutton, but he can't really compete with Robert Altman. You know, when it comes to MASH, I think of that as, um, I mean, it is a war movie in a sense, because it's dealing with the Korean War kind of setting, but I think of that as much as a... um like a, a predecessor to like those kind of like slobs versus snobs kind of comedies that come later. Like it's very much about, you know, these characters blowing off steam by getting into prankish behavior and sexual situations. So it's, I think the reason it became such a huge smash was because it tapped into that audience that would support films like Caddyshack as much as it, you know, is tapping into anti-war sentiment. I think it's, you know, that's kind of get you some people, but I think the reason it was a blockbuster to, to the point where it set up Altman for a decade worth of films and had a TV show. I think that's partly because the comedy was risque for the time in a way that, you know, hadn't been seen before. So like when the first films I have fuck in the dialogue, like it has like all these things that were envelope pushing. And I guess, you know, even something like Patton would have had stronger language than people were used to at the time. Cause 1970 is like so early into that R rating, you know, that, that fall of the production code. But, yeah, MASH being kind of put in the same ballpark as Catch-22 and Patton and Kelly's Heroes, it, it feels like it has some unfair advantages because it doesn't have any battle, you know, things. It's just, it feels more realistic because it's dealing with the, the wounds of the, of the, of the, uh, people in battle. Like it's dealing with the reality of the horror of war, but it also doesn't have to have, I think maybe Kelly's Heroes has like maybe one too many extended battle sequences. MASH doesn't have anything to do with that. It's like, you know, just hijinks. And so it feels like a lighter film, even though it has sadder sequences. I don't know if you did this on purpose, but at the beginning of when you were talking, you said that MASH was a smash. And I just want to give you a gold star for that one. I work in marketing in my daytime. <laughs> no, but I, I, I think you're totally right about why MASH was so much more popular. And my, my grandfather was in a MASH unit in Korea. And I think in some ways didn't like the film because of that kind of irreverent comedy that I think he felt was a little disrespectful. But he also, like he and I used to watch the TV show together and he would tell me, like when we would sit and watch it, he would tell me like how accurate it was. And that so much of it, especially if you were in a medical unit, was you weren't going out and participating in battle. You were just dealing with the aftermath in a really horrible way that I think made people have to rely on those kinds of distracting situations like, you know, hijinks and sexual relationships as a way to 
kind of alleviate the stress of just being stuck there day in and day out. MASH also, it, it's like those Howard Hawks movies, you know, about like guys that were pros, like, and they could be irreverent and they could be hung up on, you know, romantic shenanigans. But, you know, when, when it came down to like actually doing the job, they can do the job. Like they're, they're good at, at what they do as surgeons. I think you look at Kelly's heroes and they're, they're good soldiers, but they're, are they? They're, they're <laughs> less, they're, well, they're, but they're less committed to it. You know what their goal is than the, the characters in MASH. Like they might be equally irreverent, but you know, the people in MASH are still doing what they're supposed to do. And Kelly's heroes, I mean, they're shirking their duties. And so even if they can, get through their adventure with like a minimum of casualties it's still they're not like the good guys in the way that like a hawks you know group of guys would have been they're presented like a family as much as they make fun of each other and pull these pranks on each other they are always there to support one another and to take care of one another in a you know real physical sense whereas in kelly's heroes everybody's ready to desert whatever their mission is as soon as they hear about this bank heist. (laughs) Yeah, and you're right as far as it being a proto-slobs versus snobs kind of thing, especially when you get to the end, and I think some people forget about this, with the football game, that very protracted scene of the football game. And that is totally like, we've got a ringer, oh, they've got a ringer as well. Actually, they've got more than one ringer, and yeah, we're going to do what we need to do. I mean, them using like the drugs and knocking out the biggest player and stuff. I mean, it is very, very like, you know, you can see Gutenberg from police Academy doing something exactly the same. Talking about that football game, Martin Scorsese said it was the only football game he ever understood. (laughs) (laughs) He's not alone. I think there's that one and maybe the longest yard. And that's about it for me. There are some, smaller budget World War II movies that deal with these like concentration camp and POW camp games, soccer games between soldiers and Nazis. And it's like, it's all based on stuff. Yes, it's all based on stuff that really happened. But you're also just like, why would someone make a film out of this? <laughs> what is this? Is this supposed to be like a sad war drama? Is this a sports movie? What the hell's happening here? And I, I do think with World War II in particular, there are a lot of those movies that, especially into the 70s, like into the late 60s and 70s, so many World War II movies had already been made. And still, I think you could make movies about World War II until the end of humanity and not cover every single story. But it just some of them blend genres in the weirdest ways. And Kelly, Kelly's Heroes is definitely up there. <laughs> yeah, when you talk about sad war movies blended with like playing sports with Nazis, I'm thinking like soccer 120 days of Sodom could have been <laughs> you know, a really good blending of those tropes, but we'll never I mean, see got it. that beautiful courtyard out there. They could do all I kinds know. of stuff. That's true. You see their knees, they can kick. There, yeah. There's, there's gotta be a scene where it's like, you can't touch pigskin like that. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Come on, take a seat. 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 Take a seat.
敵の側面を突く攻撃目標は何ぞのかだ皆を置いてない力だぞ貴様いいえあんたは生き証人ですよあんたの話を誰だって嘘だと言えないですよ寺島さんお願いしますお願いしますよ戦争が終わってみ急にはい。
Thanks again, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Trying to tell me, but I guess I didn't care. I turned my back and left them standing there. All the burning bridges that have fallen after me, all the lonely feelings and the burning memories. Everyone I left behind each time I closed the door. Burning bridges lost forever. Yeah, 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 yeah. I keep all five burrows in stitches. Right, man. 
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. <laughs> That's my other dog imitation. <laughs>